0: Welcome to episode 27 of The Old World Lives, a warmer fantasy podcast. First, before even introducing the other people here for this episode, I would like to say a few words. We know it's been a while since the last episode was released. Life's been hectic for most of us. Work, family, university studies, and even some deaths in the close family. Sometimes life finds a way to take over, interfere in our hobbies. And well, you all know it is, life takes precedence. Oh, right. You may also have noted that this is episode 27. Half of episode 26 was corrupted, and we are currently waiting for Krell to have time to re-record the Beastman special. With that said, welcome to our High Elf episode. With me for this recording, I have Mr. Grumpy Short and Stunty. Say hello, Nicholas. Hello. And a special guest. Welcome. And introduce yourself, Tim. Hi, I'm Tim. That's a good introduction, not any.
1: Short and sweet. Just like dwarves.
0: So, do you know anything about elves? That's a question. I guess we'll see.
2: Uh, Yeah, I think I've got a good handle on elves. Um, I've been playing them for a very long time. Um, They're probably my favorite army in the whole Warhammer universe. Um, I started in fourth, probably at the tender age of 11, maybe even 10 um my mother actually introduced me to the hobby she uh bought me my first miniatures um i think it was probably the plastic monopose box um, of high elf spearmen and high elf archers which i'm sure some of the listeners will be very familiar with and then that was quickly followed up by my all-time favorite model still my favorite to this day which i bought for myself i think after saving up a bit of pocket money um which is the high elf mighty Tyrannock chariot (laughs) which i'm sure people
0: the old good one
2: the old good one, the heavy, hefty one with the with the yeah. ridiculous, ridiculous helmet on the charioteer. Yeah. And that pose just says it all. It just says, I know I'm the best.
0: <laughs> and it's so much better than the later plastic release, at least 100%. that's what I think. Yeah.
2: yeah, it really is a touchstone for me, that one. I've got five in my army. Um, none of them are painted. <laughs> Um, So I can't really count as being in the army yet for all intents and purposes. But yeah, one of my favorite models.
1: Yeah, I think uh, you prefer the metal version of uh, all the Hyalph models, right?
2: Absolutely. If I can. There's a few exceptions that I'm willing to make, but only because of the uniqueness of the sculpt. Um, So I have made one concession to plastic in my collection, and that is the equally excellent um, sea Helm model that they released as part of that ridiculous flying chariot. Um, obviously, yeah. I don't use the chariot, um, <laughs> but I do use him on foot because he just looks fantastic, and the trident is brilliant. Again, he has some of the same qualities that the charioteer has, so I kind of see them as bookends to my collection in a way.
0: I've been looking for, for that model. Uh, ever since it's been discontinued, I've been looking for it because I just want the Seahelm. I don't want the rest of it, maybe yeah. for bits, because why would I want yep. a flying boat without a uh, look? Concept I think what I make would
2: sense. Like is some of the plastic bolt throwers that came with that, though, to be honest. Because they sort of feel a little bit like more mobile, you know, pintle-mounted bolt throwers that you might get on the deck of a sea, of a sea elf or, or high this, elf ship. This,
0: this is true. But they that's the only the, thing. They got a similar small bolt thrower on the, the Dark Elf Chariot kit that was released in 8th edition as well.
2: Oh, did they? Yeah, it but that's not, it's
0: not, not really the same design because the High Elf one looks more High Elf and the Dark Elf one looks more, well, it's designed for the Beastmaster Chariot, so... Does it have but, a
2: sort of rack of um, bolts, like a sort of magazine of bolts attached? I I'm not very familiar
0: with it. It's uh, just a standard uh, single shot, but it looks more, more of the aesthetic of Nagaroth than both mm. one. Spiky. Yeah, and it's got a Beastmaster arm attached to it, so it might be mm. that.
2: Because I've seen I've seen some people convert bolt throwers um, for, you know, just, just sort of standard, you know, eagle claw bolt throwers out of that kit where they sort of position the uh, the, the the operator on the ground behind some cover, like uh, stacked crates and things, and they used – it sort of had quite a nice um, uh, atmosphere to it because it sort of felt like a sort of freedom fighter or something, you know, like a, it had that sort of Nagarith shadow warrior vibe to it. It looked really good. and you, I assume he was using them as proxies for a bolt thrower.
0: And I think that would make sense as well if you were have, having a really mobile force to have something really light and easily to, to transport that still packed a punch rather than dragging those massive ball throwers that they have on the ships with them.
1: And the elves have already gone on a tangent on how to build really cool models. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's bring it back to some structure.
0: Okay, Nicholas, what have you been doing in the hobby lately?
1: Uh, not that much recently, but since we haven't recorded in forever, and, a month I mean, and a half, something like yeah, that. Yeah, in the time that we have uh, released episodes, uh, two baby owls have been hatched and grown up and left their nest.
0: Yep, <laughs> <laughs> They even discontinued the webcam for it. So
1: yeah, uh, but when lockdown started, I painted a uh, regimental slayers, painted some characters, and then I ordered the. Uh, dwarf 6th edition uh, battle of standard Bear and peter him up.
0: Uh, that's the one that came with the army box, right?
1: Yes, yeah, the uh, guy who's holding the, the his helmet tucked under his right arm, and in his left arm, he's holding the standard. Uh, nice, so him up. uh, yeah, that's what I've been doing. You, Chris?
0: Well, I've been currently been on a catch up spree for a project that I haven't been uh, finished earlier, and I've uh finished a, for last month, as I'm recording the pledge for the monthly challenge, which was a terrain piece, which is, uh, well, it's a shrine to a dragon lord of old, that's made out of bits of different uh, eras, of, <laughs> high elves, and a dragon yeah. or two.
1: Very good looking, if I may say it so.
2: Yeah, beautiful water effects used to great, great effect on that one. looks amazing.
0: Thank you. I figured it needed something, even though it looks a bit like it's a bit in disrepair because the, the it's a bit uh, grimy in parts, it needed something that still looked like it was working. And I reckon elves would build a fountain to last because it's mainly magic.
2: Absolutely, yeah. It's got a lovely kind of relic quality to it. And the water effects almost look drinkable.
0: <laughs> I've heard it a lot, actually, that people yeah. have just been talking about them and asking about how they were made and uh, well if I anyone,
2: uh, tutorial on Instagram which is yeah
0: which is I, I figure I should just post one because why not if people ask they probably want to know
2: um, you also I, find you finished the bolt throwers right
0: yeah well I finished and posted one there's a bit, some touch-ups for this, the last one but that's uh, the next project on the line so I'll have two of them and okay. uh, now that Not that I could uh, spoil it. It's uh, one of those are a metal one and one of those are a plastic one. Those bolt rollers, they're just the the one with all of the balls, the one with the six rack of bolts on top is the plastic one, and the one with one on top is the metal one. and I just uh, used bits from the plastic kit to convert the metal one because I had a broken arrow on the metal kit.
2: Right, right. I'm just wondering because there's because obviously there's two metal ones, isn't there? There's the
0: yeah, the, the the metal the metal one I have is the one that looks like what they remade into plastic in the seventh. Yeah, ed, okay,
2: Yeah, so proportionally they probably feel quite in keeping.
0: Yeah, the, it's uh, it's uh, the differences are barely noticeable in size. Mm. It's uh, some I of the details.
1: We will have to name this episode the High Elf Boltrower episode. Oh,
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah. We'll just talk
2: about bolt rows for two hours, shall we?
0: But I really like design. I also have one of those old ones with, uh, like, the double rack of arrows on top. Yeah, the mad rack. <laughs> <laughs> that are, like, two, two separate pieces and just cast arrows on top. I might mm-hmm. put that on a terrain piece because I am possibly building another terrain piece. So should be Brilliant. suitable for that one.
2: Are you going to give awesome. away what that's going to be? Or is that top well, it's,
0: secret? It's related to a Sea Guard harbour patrol and their ways oh. of moving around the water. Okay. So that's a, that's okay. as close as saying a boat as I can without saying boat. Yeah, so I'm going to go boat. <laughs> yeah. going to be like a, one of those uh, small, uh, quick, quick, uh, just like a small patrol vessel, not, nothing major.
1: Pulled by a hawk?
0: No, it, it would be <laughs> bigger than hawk-powered, po- <laughs> the hawk-power can convey it. With.
1: You
2: should probably suggest uh, that listeners come up with a name for it, and just hope that they don't call it Boaty McBoatface. <laughs>
0: there, there are and I know this because I have looked at the stats for this podcast, there are too many Australians listening to this podcast that I could actually ask that. It'll,
2: it'll get called podium of both face, definitely. <laughs> yeah, if we
0: are lucky. Hmm.
2: So uh, what about
1: you, Tim? What have you been up to? Yeah, the
2: I have a huge amount of hobbying, to be honest, but uh, the most recent stuff I did, or I'm trying to do, is a batch paint for a high elf army. So that's painting the whole army batch paint, which, I don't know, I'm hoping will get give me sort of a big big result in one go um, the idea is just to get it up to tabletop standard and then i can take my time doing the nice bits um you know at, at my own leisure
1: so how are you uh going about it are you painting one regiment at a time or several regiments or uh, what
2: well what i'm trying to do because there's a because the big problem i have is the those awful games workshop um paint pots dry out really quick so yeah. part of my thinking is to just use one pot at a time so essentially to answer your question I'm just doing one color at a time and if it happens to be present on one of the one of the types of models it will get a lick of paint that matches that color. So basically the whole army is getting done color by color. I think I'm up to the mm. silver stage so I'm doing the metals at the moment so getting there it'll be the wash stage soon and then that's that a one, very very yeah, interesting my... approach. Yeah it's a bit mad. I know, I saw someone else doing something similar with a Tomb Kings army um, but I haven't heard from him since. So
0: <laughs> the Tomb the King's army, army. should just be paint, prime the model, paint it bone-coloured, dip it in something that makes it look like old bone colour, and add a dot of blue, and it's done.
2: Yeah, the thought, that thought did pass my mind. I was like, oh, you've chosen probably a much more sensible army to be doing this with.
0: It would be better before the plastic release in 6th edition, I think. You'd use the old scale.
2: the old metal army. That's why I was really impressed with it. uh
0: uh-huh.
1: Uh, so how, how much are you painting though? Like wh- what is your army? 100 oh, a hundred models. Oh, I don't know. No
2: it's, no, it's bigger than that. So we've got, what is there? So there's, there's 20, no, hold on. Is that, no, it's 40, 40 archers for two units of 20 spearmen. So that's obviously a lot of rank of file to get through, uh, a unit of 30 sword masters, uh, um, a unit of 23 silver helms, um, four bolt throws. I'm just trying to look because I'm looking it off in the distance in the room here. Um, and then there's the monolith, which is obviously supposed to be the sort of centerpiece. Uh, then there'll be a great eagle or a giant eagle, um, not which is sort of going to be converted to be a, an interesting sort of uh, magical looking eagle. So the idea is to give it a, a, a nice sort of, um, sort of magical tone, so purples and, and blues and things like that. So it sort of feels quite arcane. That's another centerpiece, and then a unit of fifteen Shadow Warriors,
0: um, which is the maximum you can have in six in a unit. But that's um, an odd-sized unit yeah, as well. Say again. An odd-sized uh, unit of Shadow Warriors. It's like quite, it's quite hefty to have fifteen of them in one yeah, go. Well,
2: the thinking is to be able to split it into three units of five, or you know, just use it, use yeah. it in various ways. Really,
0: but uh, I would love to see you actually use them, fifteen in one blob. You see what you could do. Yeah.
2: I want to give it a go. That's why, I'm, that's why I'm doing it, really.
1: Well, sounds awesome. My dwarves are uh, ready and waiting for battle against this mighty host.
2: <laughs> yeah, I can't wait. I'm shopping at the bit as well. As soon as this <laughs> lockdown gets, you know, lifted and, well, we're not really on lockdown, I suppose. As soon as as soon as it's a bit more sensible to be going out and gathering in games clubs or other people's houses, then it will happen. And it's also kind of giving me a bit of a deadline for this project as well. So.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah, so it's going to be some uh, War of the Beard action then, when it's all cool. done?
1: Yeah, that would be great. I would love to to build a list with uh, the War of the Beard rules. The only
2: trouble with that, well, we won't get into it now, because I'm sure we'll talk about War of the Beard at some point, but um, there's a bit of trouble with that, because obviously I won't be able to take advantage of all of the lovely War of the Beard um, unit caps that get kind of lifted, because <laughs> um, the army's not built in that way, but... Uh, I, yeah. I have another project that I've been gathering the parts for to do with War of the Beard, which which should be a fun one and a heavy, hefty one.
0: I need a third uh, of the old dragons that uh, were either released in plastic or metal. The pl- pl- plastic ones were released in Sixth Dead, I know.
2: Which ones were those? Oh, oh the, the, the
0: old Forest Dragon, Imric, uh, Asarnil, that generation of dragons. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, some of them were metal when they were the leftovers, so to speak. And then you have the sticks that was released with the same plastic body with different heads in metal.
2: That's it. A lot of people uh, really love that model. And it was an incredibly um, impactful one when it was released. I remember because it was part of the Talisman set. You had the big dragon and he was huge and i remember my my best mate at the time who started the hobby with me he had one and i was in awe of it and it meant that he could feel it in his fourth edition armies because with weapons, <laughs> you could do that back then you could pay an inordinate amount of money to actually have a dragon in your army because only any army could have a dragon back then um so he was always you know popping some sort of mad shaman on the back of his dragon and <laughs> you know i lost my of. Myself- dragon advantage. Well, I don't think I owned a dragon back then, so he was wiping the floor with me.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I need to get one more so I can f- field a full unit of uh, dragon princes, because I have two already. Yeah. Because so, I feel a that's needed for War of the Beard to properly field. Say,
2: yeah, There's probably not much point in doing a War of the Beard high-off army unless you're going to do that, I think. Because that's
0: <laughs>
3: the
2: UFP of that army.
0: Yeah, I have that and then the t- two units of uh, uh, swords yeah. masters, and then all of the boosted mages you can have because you can take so much yep. more magic items for everyone.
2: This amount of magic items. It really does sort of give you the sense of that golden era when things were more available, when when, when the realms hadn't been so badly damaged by chaos incursions and constant strife and war. And,
0: yeah. You know, well, the, two, the, the two
2: races, dwarves and elves, were at their absolute height.
0: Yeah, because the, the dwarf list is quite impressive as well. Mm-hmm. For That one. Mm-hmm. But... Uh, more on that later in the episode where we might just touch on it because we're also going to do a as we've mentioned many times a war of the beard special because it really deserves that and it's not mm-hmm. only because the host of this show really likes dwarves and elves it's nothing to do with that okay, it's mainly to do with that
2: <laughs> well i'm all of, i'm all up for that as well
0: yeah so news all i know is that the Lumineth, if you want some fancy modern looking elves are up for pre-order and depending on, the yeah, it's just the army box, so you can't buy them separately yet. And if you live anywhere else than parts of Europe and the UK, you should probably not get that box because it's prohibitively expensive. But the Altharion is quite cool.
2: That, uh, yeah, the hollow Altharian. he is interesting, isn't he? Um, yeah. I, I was speaking to somebody about the design cues they're taking on. I think it's a really interesting idea, and I was really struck by that model when I first saw it. I was thinking, oh, I've never seen anything like that done by GW before. That's quite impressive. But somebody was telling me that essentially there's a very similar sort of troop type in in the old Rackham range, uh, which looks almost identical. And it essentially is hollow armor that's been reanimated. Um,
0: that doesn't and, surprise me in the slightest. Yeah, there does seem to be a bit of a going on. But I, I've been looking at the spruce that are up on the GW site now, and it would possibly be, uh, you, you could possibly be able to actually fill him and make him an elf again.
2: <laughs> Bring him back to life. A lot of green stuff and skills
0: yeah. for that. Yeah, that's that's probably where the plan ends. <laughs> look at it. I can't do this. Well, those I are
1: fighting it. words for Jimmy.
0: Oh, you mean, oh, Jimmy, I bet you can't do this. You mean that one? <laughs> Because <laughs> he probably could, because he's really good at it. I have a feeling
2: we're going to see some fantastic things from that model. I think we'll probably see a couple Golden Demon entries that look amazing. Yeah. People doing really interesting lighting effects, some OSL. All sorts of fun stuff could be done with
0: that. I'm just waiting for the one that puts a, an LED inside it. Yeah, that'll happen. Or clear cast... Uh... <laughs> yeah, that'll be perfect. You could also clear cast the elf part in a tinted resin or something. Yep. To make it, uh, yeah.
2: Yeah. His ghostly, incorporeal form.
0: But it is uh, quite. Uh, I, I bet they just did this one to show off what they, what that particular sculptor could do with plastic kit.
2: Yeah, it does feel like that, doesn't it? It does feel like a showpiece.
0: Yeah. The only thing that I'm a bit surprised by is that he only has one sheath for his swords, but he has two swords. Oh,
2: that's an interesting detail. I didn't pick up on
0: and it's empty so it's or, so it's empty so it's actually for one of his swords that's uh, <laughs> but that's uh, that's pr- probably
1: it's, maybe he it's, used to sticks the other one into his armor somewhere
0: yeah you can just keep it in his chest or something for a <laughs> leg it's it's age of stigma we don't really know what's going on do we do anyone know, know what's no. going on? maybe he sheaths it in his enemies I don't
1: know yeah possibly safety always yeah. off
2: So um,
0: then there's the lovely Spearman in this kit, at okay, least. And they have some proper Spears that will probably snap in a week or two after getting them on the field.
2: Yeah, we were discussing this earlier. There's a lot of delicate pieces on these Elf models. I guess you can't really avoid that. Sorry, Lumineth, not Elf. Um, you can't really avoid that because it's you know they've got to have this delicate style to them in terms of how they're presented.
0: But I really like, because uh, I got uh, the sword strapped to the backs as well. So if you... Just mod these a bit, maybe even if they fit, put uh, the Shadow Warrior helmets on them. Yeah. You could make these look uh, quite li- like they're from... Uh, the Old World. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Nagaroth, the one, because Nagaroth is the where the dark Flicks and got Nagaroth. Yeah. So you can ma- possibly make them look like they are from the same kind of army as the Shadow Warriors, mm-hmm. which would look kind of quite cool.
2: Those Shadow Warrior helms are great from, from that old kit, aren't they? Because they, you yeah. can apply them to almost any any sort of elf like model and it automatically imbues them with that sort of faceless, unknown warrior quality. And it, it's it's great.
0: Yeah. And uh, as long as they're similar somewhat similar size, they shouldn't look too far off. And you will get rid of that feather dust or whatever they have on top. <laughs>
2: well, you know me, I'm a big fan of plumes. Oh, it's all about the plumage. I don't I don't have a problem <laughs> with that stuff. <laughs>
0: I'm thinking of maybe if I'm keeping the original ones, maybe changing the top of them a bit. But they're elves—they should look a bit silly.
2: Yeah, absolutely. A little bit ostentatious. A little bit of a of of another world. A decadent place.
0: <laughs> yeah, and then we got the new silver helms as well. They look great. They should be usable, and they they do right. not. Yeah, and they do not look worse than the plastic silver helms. Are you just going to say that?
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely not. Those plastic silver helms are travesty. Um, yeah. But, uh, yeah, they're definitely an, an improvement on that. And they and they probably will work really – as you, I think you said earlier when we were talking before, um, they work really well with those Illyrian Reavers from the Islander Blood box as well.
0: Yeah, they've got a bit similar types of armor where you have uh, the scale armor out on top of the cloth, just mm-hmm. layer it a bit. Mm-hmm. And uh, maybe have to work a bit with the poses on the horses, but uh, they should look good yeah, when they're painted.
2: Point of contact. I know from experience with a couple of Lord of the Rings models, like the, the Riders of Rohan and things like that. Those those horses were so fragile because they had such a delicate single point of contact. Any little knock they would, would get would often break them. Yeah, it's
0: and all, these these have one. I think it's one hoof connecting yeah. to the base. So maybe I should just get a load of dwarves put on the bottom and then glue the <laughs> Oh
1: god. Let me <laughs> get my book.
0: Just going to sit and sulk in the corner now.
2: Another, He's going to write
1: down all the grudges today. Another line in the book of grudges going
2: down.
0: <laughs> oh, they, they are pr- possibly the best models shown for the Lumineth or released for Lumineth that we know of I think. The horse riders yeah. the I'm just going to check. We the we gonna talk about dawn riders. The yeah, cows? we going to
2: talk about the cows. Are we allowed to talk about the cows?
0: Do we need to? They kind of speak. They kind of speak for themselves. Because there's a regular cow cow mountain and there's a named cow mountain. That's a character,
2: right? The cow mountains. Yeah. With the mountains on their shoulders. I, I do I have to admit, I really like some of the, the shots that GW released of the, the whole sort of force so far uh, arranged with the sunrise coming up. You know, it's very evocative, very good stuff. But those cow guys, they really break my immersion.
0: Yeah. And, the, well, those cow guys and the helms for those hammer guys. Because oh they God, have the yes. cow, cow the, the minotaur head on top of an elf. Helmet.
2: Cow <laughs> I was trying to think about how that, because the arms are, I think you probably talked about this before, but the arms are a bit too far apart on those to turn them into something like a swordmaster or... Phoenix uh, card. Or
0: a phoenix, yeah, maybe with a helmet. Oh, you could change, uh, just remove the hammer head, put an axe head on top of them, call them uh, mm-hmm. white lions.
2: Yeah, yeah, I guess that would work. Yeah, I guess my mind was automatically going to sword masters because they're just my favorite and that's what I want the most. But
0: yeah, <laughs> me, me too. But I have like 50 plastic ones already and 30 metal yeah. ones, so I don't really need more sword masters no matter how much <laughs> I want them.
2: Definitely not. How many is that? Hold on, that's 80.
0: I can feel the yeah. quite decent force for War of the Beard. If I, oh, yeah,
2: you're right, you split, you
0: split them in. Well, half of them are painted, but
2: that's... Poor old Niklas isn't going to stand a chance when we ally against him.
1: Swordmasters. Well, they have heavy armor, that's it? Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it is heavy.
0: And they yeah. don't have that, that fancy missile-deflecting rule that they have in 8th edition either.
1: Uh, no,
2: or
0: in, yeah. I think they had that in 5th as well. Yep. <laughs> they lost a lot in 6th edition. <laughs> they made them more pin, killable. Pin cushions. The best
2: unit, In my opinion.
0: Mm. Is gonna. I got stuck on looking at the War of a Community page, and that's not good. Speaking of the War yeah. of a Community, the reason I started to paint a lot recently is that I've been inspired by watching those daily shows they have now for free on Twitch. I've got going... it there. It's, I'm not uh, ashamed of saying that. I have too much time, and I can might as well watch live streams talking about hobby, even though that's not the exact hobby that I'm into. It's in painting.
2: Do you do it while you paint, or do you just watch it as a sort of... You know, it's mainly
0: while I paint, or, well, I have been watching that while I'm playing PS4 as well, but that's beside the point, I think. I haven't had school, school, schools out for the semesters, so I don't have much to do. It's just There's no summer jobs or anything. So. Right, <laughs> so, right. There that was a bit of something, I think it was a pandemic, so something that just ruined everything. There is,
2: I've, I've heard a bit about that, yeah. <laughs> A lot of people seem to be talking about it. <laughs> yeah.
0: over. And in parts of the world, people are not talking enough about it, which is odd. True, true. So we have challenges still uh, this month for the monthly OWL challenge. It's uh, a hero-level character for whichever edition and army you want. And uh, we also have, which is possibly or possibly not due to me not finishing anything, uh, the alternative was uh, finish projects that you have started for the other challenges and not finished yet.
2: No. I think I might have to take up that one, although there's not much time left in the month. So,
0: Well, it's uh, at the time of recording, nine days.
2: True. I did, maybe I can get it in. Maybe I could. Yeah, I've got all the parts I need now. No more excuses.
0: It's a good good uh, reason as any. Well, if even I finish projects, that should be <laughs>
2: Yeah, that's true. That's true. I need to take a leaf out of your book.
0: Yeah, but we figured also it's been six months of sh- months of challenges. There are people that haven't finished everything. Why not just have a catch-up month? And-
2: yeah, a good way to wrap things up for people, yeah. yeah. It's always good when you can finally finish that project. You've been, been sat on your hobby desk for months. A real moment of triumph.
0: Yeah, and then we have our Battle Standard bears Challenge All of the details are on our Facebook for that one. It will run to the 15th of July and then we will have, I think we said a community vote for those that finish it for a winner for a yet-to-be-disclosed prize of some sort, but that's up to Jimmy. So we might have to prod him a bit until he replies and see what he's up to these days.
1: Mordheim. It's always up to Mordheim.
0: This is true. Speaking of Mordheim, Jimmy has done a bit of a side project within the remit of the podcast, and uh, people have probably seen this on uh, Instagram at the moment. He'll be looking at uh, getting some questions in for a little series called Town Crier, isn't it? Which is a Mm -hmm. more uh, sub-podcast that's going to be under our um, little umbrella of the whole world lives, and uh, yeah, it's going to be a Released when it's released, because I'm not involved in that, so I have no time frame or anything. But Jim is working hard on it. That's all we know.
1: Yeah, it's going to be good. We have a lot of listeners that are into Mordheim, and there's a huge Mordheim movement on Instagram as well. So loads of people playing it, so that'll be interesting for sure.
2: I just recently joined the Mordheim Facebook group, and it's amazing to see the community there. One of the best things that I noticed almost straight away was a rules query had been popped up there. And the first person to comment was Tumas, just immediately clarifying exactly what he meant.
0: Yeah, I don't <laughs> think there's
2: any other game out there where that happens.
0: And it's it's a game that turned twenty last year, so it's uh, those that are oh, yeah. playing. There are still new players coming into the game, which is nice. But there are players that have played for twenty years and still have to ask the questions on what people meant from the beginning, which is oh, also okay. nice. And it's <laughs> it's a real it's a fun thing to to play. I have a Skaven Warband and I'm working on a second one. Um, but uh, there is are disgusting lack of elves in that game.
2: That's always been the barrier to entry for me as well. <laughs> and all the ones that are on there are considered sort of a little bit unkosher to use because they're too OP. Um, yeah,
0: or they weren't technically in Mordheim at that yeah. point in time, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. I know Jimmy, and, but... Uh,
1: everyone, and everyone else rejoices over the lack of pointers. <laughs>
2: <laughs> over the lack of filthy knife ears
1: yeah. Yeah. So,
0: so that's why I'm doing a pit fighter warband from the next one with, which will have mainly elven pit fighters so oh they, I see that's a loop we'll yeah. the, they won't be, be as powerful or stat wise as elves but they will be there there be else in the I,
2: I think that was the way it worked wasn't it the pit fighters could get armed with various weapons that sort of related to f- other factions so Do they
0: have uh, four yeah, four or say. five fighting styles like the, a chaos yeah, fighting yeah. style and a, yeah, yeah, yeah so they have a different weapon like uh, gladiators of old where they basically they're mm. an archetype instead of just hair have a sword
2: and, and so, so uh, i always always love discovering new things about Mordheim, because it always seems like one of the most carefully considered and clever little clever games, basically, that, that, that was ever done, ever put out. That sort of little detail you just des- described, where they've sort of taken a real world example of how it worked and then applied it to the old world, um, it's just really clever. Yeah,
0: And it uh, became its own contained setting as well, because the city was taken taking off the maps from the regular game after it was destroyed. Oh. So. Uh, well, it was on the map, but you couldn't really, you shouldn't really travel there because it was basically like a new continent yeah. in the middle. Even though it was a warp, a weird stone, stone comet, the sort of city. Almost,
2: almost, like it, like it exists in its own little metaverse.
0: Well, these days, it most definitely do because they blow up the old world. Mm,
2: <laughs> that's true. All <laughs> more time survived. <laughs> the yeah, and
0: uh, Now we have Blood Bowl also existing in a pocket universe somewhere.
2: Yeah, little pocket universes everywhere, including our own one, sixth 6th edition. <laughs> wasn't in time.
0: Oh, right. We, we were actually talking about something today, weren't we?
2: I think the theme is High Elves, isn't
0: it? It's High Elves. This is the High Elves special. It's uh, been long t- talked about, and uh, we actually have someone that knows pr- a proper amount of High Elves on as a guest, which is really nice. Otherwise, I have to
2: would- admit, when I... When I first um, started listening, I was very excited to hear the, the High Elf one, and then it hadn't been done yet, and I was like, "Oh, when are they going to do it? Why don't, you know, it'd be, be great to listen to that whilst actually painting High Elves." Um, well, and still be I
0: think this will be out in a few days, hopefully. Yeah,
1: yeah. Now we so, ruined it for you. Now you just have to
0: listen to yourself <laughs> talking, which is horrible. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: nothing
2: I nothing I hate more than listening to myself. So thanks, guys.
0: You you just uh, be glad that you don't have to edit it and have to listen to it over and over again before you release it.
2: Uh, Yeah, I'll be be thankful for small mercies.
1: Right, so where should we start with High Elves? I I don't know a lot about them. They've always been the other guys since I am a dwarf player. Uh, But I always found them very fascinating. Just a a very deep race. They have a, a lot going on with them.
2: Yeah, huge, highly involved history um which i think in the books is called the chronicles of the phoenix king so it has a lovely grand title there's a lot of grandiose stuff in the high elf history and the,
3: yeah.
2: and the language and the setting and this sort of very high fantasy sort of epic storylines in high elf fluff which are great fun great fun to read
1: so where do they come from uh both in the world and kind of in, Me- in fantasy in general
2: Mm. Uh, well there's obviously everyone you know everyone knows that you know elves before Tolkien were little short mischievous things uh, probably more similar to fairies Um, but obviously Tolkien came along and turned them into these sort of Nordic inspired um, uh, pseudo-Celtic sort of inspiration as well
0: they took Um, a lot of inspiration from the is it the Vanar yes which are the other gods in the Nordic mythology
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I think, yes, because that's what they are in Tolkien, isn't it? They're the Valar,
0: yeah.
2: who are essentially the gods that were created at creation. Um, and I always used to love that in the Silmarillion, the way that the world is created with music and the Valar all have their part to play to create the world. There's a beautiful bit of mythology in there. But the High Elves, in, in at least the Games Workshop's interpretation, a sort of a blend, and we were discussing this earlier, and I always think that they're a bit of a blend with Tolkien's tiles Elves, or the, I think they're either the Noldorin or the Cinderin. I can never tell which the two are. You might be able to, Chris. And the...
0: um. We should have Krell on for the, that, yeah, because really he, knows it. It he knows that by heart. know again? It. We should have Krell on for that one, because he knows uh, Tolkien by heart. Right. He, he know okay. no those annoying details that he don't, and just... Uh, <laughs> <with them. laughs> Just to
2: pull the rug out from under him yeah. now
0: and again. Uh, the Noldor elves were the ones uh, led by Feanor, the one who created the Silmarils. Okay. The so one who r- massacred r- cities when they didn't want to lend him their boats and stuff like that.
2: Right. Yeah, that's it. So you've got those in Tolkien, and then you and then you sort of had this period, and I don't, not too clear on the dates, but you have a lot of fiction coming out um, in the sort of late sixties, early seventies, and then mid seventies, and. One of the writers that I read an awful lot of after getting into Games Workshop stuff was uh, Michael Moorcock and all his novels, the Eternal Champion novels, which include amazing characters like The Prince with the Silver Hand and um, Elric, who has long been rumoured they were going to be making a film about that stuff but it hasn't really ever materialized but it has a different character to the tolkien stuff it's much darker and it has this sort of old um sort of epic saga-y vibe to it that's a bit different to tolkien's which is a very self-contained world um obviously the eternal champion in michael moorcock's novels is more of a it's more of a sort of uh, a metaverse so you have lots of universes that intersect so it allows for a whole load of different interesting interpretations which he does in his books um, but the elves when they get represented or, or as they're known in the Elric novels they're called the Melnabonians they are sort of much have a much sort of darker crueler sort of quality to them and they're dragon tamers as well they ride dragons and they have you know an incredibly decadent society that falls from grace so i think there's a lot of Stuff that Games Workshop will have borrowed from that, that blends with the Tolkien stuff to give us the high elves, essentially, and old one.
1: Yeah, I remember a friend of mine said that uh, elves, like I said, I didn't like them because they seem very, very superior in every way. And he said he likes them so much because they are so obviously flawed as well. They are great, but they are also just assholes.
2: I'm so glad you said that, Nicholas, cause it's because that is something that I like about it as well, that their propensity for flaws, you know, they're, they're almost totalitarian in places, and, and it's arrogant to a fault and all this stuff. So it kind of great, it creates these great characters that are so hubristic that they are sort of their own worst enemies in a way, which is why you get the great conflict between the High Elves and the Dark Elves.
1: Uh, yeah. Okay, so, so where do they come from in the old war- world? They were created among uh, one of the first races by the old ones, right?
0: I think so, yeah. That's, that's it. Yeah. They were, they were the, created after the, sl- the Lizardmen, but, but before the other races, I think. Mm.
1: Yeah. So the
2: first, and then the elves were the, were the next. And I think dwarves were soon after that. Yeah.
0: And then uh, they created... Unnecessary stuff like humans, and to sort all the problems they'd made, they created the orcs <laughs>
2: <laughs> just to balance things out.
0: Yeah, well, they didn't create all of the sentient races because some of them just sprang out of nowhere.
2: Yeah, more accidents.
0: Yeah, didn't yeah, but they were are. created to, and they were created in which they were thought, thought magic by the old ones themselves, the first ones.
2: Yeah, that's that's ex- made explicit in the in the lore, I think.
1: Um, so, so the Old Ones made dragons as well, right? Because so, the elves and dragons have a special bond, don't they?
2: They do, yeah. There's some somewhere in the fluff, uh, it gets discussed about how the dragons were essentially friends with the gods. So that would suggest that the dragons are slightly older than the elves in some way. Yeah, the, the dragons, dragons were, were there before
0: the elves. I think the dragons were were on the planet when the Old Ones arrived. Because they had, the Old Ones aren't native to the warmer world, the Old World. So there's some, well, that's that's that's
2: fantastic, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. That, that means that they were very indigenous, populace of, yeah. the, of, of the Warhammer world.
0: And they lived in uh, the world before the old ones reshaped it and before the elves reshaped mm-hmm. their lands to their liking. And you had, and not all elves can befriend a dragon. You have to be of a certain mindset, a certain bloodline to befriend one, because there are two ways to ride a dragon. You either befriend it and it becomes your ally, Or you enslave it. Mm
3: -hmm.
0: And if you enslave it, it will fight for you and against you from the first second that happens. And the moment you slip in control, it will eat you. (laughs) Or in the case of certain small spoiler warning, what happened during the War of the Beard when they actually did enslave some dragons and the main main elf that enslaved the dragon was tossed off and fell right into the dwarven army.
2: Oops! See ya. Yeah, So Accidentally thrown by his mount. Yeah. into the enemy. Mm-hmm.
0: The
2: yeah, princes so of,
0: the princess of Calador. The, the bloodlines of the Caladorian nobles have always been able to connect with the dragons in a different way than most other elves. They are more of of the world than the other elves. Mm-hmm.
2: And this is this kind of starting point. Uh, you know, even before the first sort of chronicles of the first Phoenix King in High Elf lore. You have the dragons and the and Kalador dragon tamer, who is I'm yeah. sure you know a lot about, Chris.
0: Well, he was the greatest elf that ever lived.
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, according, I mean, he's he's still alive. Yeah,
0: he, he's the only reason the world still exists, after all. Mm-hmm. Because during because his sacrifice during the first war against chaos is the reason the world still stands.
1: Is he the guy that fought off? Uh... He's the guy so inside the wall. G-
0: Anarion that, is the guy that fought, fought,
1: fought
0: off. That's Anarion.
1: Okay, yeah.
2: yeah. Um, so Anarion is the one that, in the lore, is described as the greatest elf that ever lived. But Calador is actually sort of when you look at it, he's actually a much more self a um, facing and uh, kind of uh, uh, a sac- sacrifices himself for the good of the elves you know in, in more, more so than an arian does because an arian becomes flawed we talked about, about that a little bit earlier yeah. as the flaw of, of elvish hubrist, hubristic
0: natures should, uh, I, yeah, should, should I just summarize that war perhaps
2: yeah that first one that would be good yeah, yeah the first the first chronicle of the first phoenix king
0: yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna probably be you know, butchered and paraphrase it because i don't have the text in front of me, but there is a great uh, audio drama that's set during this, and it uh, features, uh, it's basically told from the point of Anarion. Oh, wow. It's called Anarion. So, (laughs) but uh, (laughs) Anarion was from, he built the city of Anlech, that's a city that will be talked about later on Mm. when we come to the Dark Elves but uh during the, the early times uh, the when the old old ones had to leave the old world or the planet when their <laughs> basically stargates exploded on in the Chaos where and on the south, south pole re- unleashing hellish winds of magic and with them demons in a in an amount of the amount of demons that have, hasn't been seen since outside of the realm of chaos and uh, the elves spent hundreds of years fighting and losing battle against the demons because they couldn't really do anything, with an Arian leading the armies of the elves, with Kalidor and his mages inventing new types of magic, inventing new types of weapons just to battle the demons. A lot of the magical weapons that are relics in the setting in 6th edition stem from this time, where Kalidor and the priests of war Wol- Wol- forged Magical weapons just to be able to destroy demons.
1: Gotta get rid of that 5 plus ward save. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: Just trying to shave off the ward saves with uh, incredible weapons of massive potency forged from that, all kinds that, of
0: that, unique levels. <laughs> that and most of the nobles and the dragon mages were mounted on dragons. That at that time, there haven't been such a great collection of dragons and. Great warriors since. So. But,
2: uh, well, the forging of, of weapons and armor at Vols, well, they, I think it's called Vols Anvil, isn't it? Which is the yeah. sort of famous. Yeah. Yeah. I guess it might be useful to touch on the elven god Vol at this point, who's the blind god of um, smiths, essentially, the smith god yeah. for elves and artisans and so on. Um, but I think part of it. I remember because I read it recently. The the way that dra- dragons are tamed by Dr- Caledor dragon tamers by using these sort of harnesses, which are clearly something that would have been forged at at Vaul's anvil. Um, and I can't remember what they're made out of, but it's some sort of mystical uh, arcane material, some sort of mm-hmm. quicksilver or mithril.
0: Um, yeah, because they're not made of ethilmer, are they?
2: Yeah, it could be Ithilmar. Um but they they call it something different in the fourth edition books because um, of course they're still trying to figure this all out, and and eventually they have to invent something that's different to Mithril because of copyright reasons, and they call it Ithilmar. Yeah, um, but but uh, but that's a key thing to bear in mind is that the sort of the craftsmanship of the elf sort of for you know forgers and and the priests of all are key to sort of t- taming the dragons and as well yeah. as befriending them and understanding, you know, they're allies really, in, in the sense that that's the way elves approach almost everything, high elves anyway, rather than enslaving, they would prefer to make allies. So whenever there's a beast involved, if it fights for them, it fights willfully of its own will and not yeah. not through any other means.
0: Yeah, and uh, speaking of Gold's Forge, uh, a great battle is fought close to that with Aen- Anarion and Caledor and the main elven army is tied up in that but they they do get one of the greatest victories so far in the war in, the, in that battle but it's what happens after that battle that is the important thing because there's two there are two demon armies that day and the other demon army goes after the ever queen in yeah. avalon and the uh, deva queen falls and uh, the message brought back to Anarian is that his wife and his children are slain, which, uh, well, it shatters his, his world and he, dis, he swears upon all the gods since Asurion has forsaken him. He will travel to Cursed Island, take up Widowmaker, the Sword of Cain, mm. because his life is no more. His world is no more he will end the demons
2: so it's useful to maybe, maybe discuss because uh, an arian is not really a king yet i mean he, he at the point being, it, Chris. he's he's um he's become a king now he's passed through the shrine of Ashuran and, and the um,
0: flame I
2: to, to sort of do that without magical assistance apparently although you You've no, you've no idea how that works, really. And um, his, I think I remember he. So the key thing to also point out at the moment is that his is sort of high elf uh, governance and the monarchy and how it works, because they, they have a sort of two a twin monarch system, really, where the Ever Queen uh, inherits her position, I think. So it's always passed down through a bloodline, and she she always uh, is married to the Phoenix King. Who up until the point of Anarion, it's we are led to believe it's it's always been a Calidorian because of course they have access to dragons and are able to enforce their might on the other kingdoms, the ten kingdoms of Orthlan. Uh, and unite them in much a way that sort of um, George R. R. Martin sort of borrows that a little bit I think um, and and that sort of allows them to be the, the de facto phoenix kings up until the point where they're losing this massive battle against chaos and Anerion then is discovered and becomes a great hero uh, passes through the shrine um, and the flame and survives so is therefore chosen by Asurian. so he's then sort of got imbued with the, the power of their chief god Asurian, who's the sort of the main god there's lots of them but he's the one he's the of the pantheon yeah um and he then is also because he's been imbued with the power of Asurian he's now got the ability to wield the sword um otherwise he probably wouldn't have been able to
1: wield it but i just thought i'd fill
3: in
2: a few things there in terms of the way that elvish
1: works. so so what is this sword where does it come from
0: it was forged by vol for the god of murder of the elven pantheon Kane, or the right. the warrior god.
2: Yeah, who's essentially corn, really? Yeah, I mean it's not hard to make that oh. jumble.
0: that they've they've been so well hidden hidden those links to the god mm. that was the exact same thing and named the same thing. Hmm.
1: So so did these gods walk on uh, the earth at the beginning of the elven times or no. Is that what...
0: there's no yeah. I don't it's think clear it, is, is, is it? it? It's well, it might be like with the Dwarven gods that they actually were some kind of ancestor. Mm, it could be. Or, or it was uh, something that the a way of worship the old ones gave the elves to focus their abilities.
3: Yeah,
2: I always like that interpretation better, to be honest. Because And it- if
0: you imbue, if you have magic and you imbue an idea with something over time, several yeah. thousand years, we should also mention that this takes place about, what is it? four and a half thousand yeah. years before the founding of the empire. Yeah. Well,
2: it's important to point that out, isn't it? Because all the Elvish history, yeah. the majority of it, up until the last two Phoenix Kings, takes place um, several, well, you, four, you said four, four and a half thousand years before uh, the founding of the empire and And, Sigma. Yeah. Um, and, and the-, the way they reckon their time is slightly different. So they, they sort of see each passage of time as... The reign of a king which is why the chronicles of the kings d- define the era that you grow up in and you, yeah. you flourish in if you're an elf um and each of those reigns is counted from the year one of that reign up until the final year of the king's reign so you have a whole host of different lengths of reign for each of the different phoenix kings and i think the longest one is something like 1500 years so that's as long as he lives and then the shortest one is something like 80 which i think is an area actually i think he's
0: yeah, the short of of one. speaking of at this point in the story, where when he's just been delivered the note that his wife and children has been murdered by the demon horde, well, murdered, massacred, eaten, turned into bedsheets. I'm not sure what they're going to, depending on which god it is. But uh, at this point, he de- the despair he feels is something that probably only an elf can feel because they do also not only have the arrogance, they also have the emotional range but that is yeah, a great. I mean, humans.
2: I don't mind saying that they can be a bit drama queeny now and again. That's not a problem. I mean, they are uh, emotional beings, ultimately. They're not sort of like Vulcans in Star Trek, where they're sort of suppressing their emotions.
0: Being emotional is valid. Mm-hmm. But because if the Ever Queen is dead and her daughter is dead, there is no more Ever Queen.
3: Yeah.
0: That's a thing that, that's the info he has on that when he forsakes Assyrian and travels on. In Rognir, his dragon, up to get reclaimed the sword. Mm-hmm. So he travels to the dial, he draws the sword, swears an oath to Cain, and returns. And with the sword and the magic, and obviously all of the other magic items that Kalidor uh, and his mages have created, they begin to fight back. They begin to at least battle the demons to a stalemate. I and
2: think that- it- Sections. He's he's fighting four different greater demons all at once, and
0: that's uh,
2: described yeah. as this colossus, almost a demigod because of the power he's he's got from both Cain and Assyria. Yeah,
0: he's an avatar, an avatar, of the Elven gods. He's a basically yes, he's a demon, almost yeah. if you want to put those words in it. Mm-hmm. The power level is as. And this uh, this, as I mentioned, the battle for demons is what he's doing while Calador and his cadre of mages are enacting the. The po- most powerful, most potent magical ritual ever performed up to this point, and po- possibly since,
3: mm.
0: because they're creating a vortex in the middle of the Inner Sea on an island that is designed to channel and funnel all of the winds of chaos and winds of magic and dr- drain them out of the world.
2: Yeah, sort of diluting the world of its magic yeah. a little bit, which is going to help in the battle essentially, because demons. And, love it born from
0: nowhere. And, you know. But they, they do have their reservations, and Aaron says to themselves, if we go through with this, we might not have any weapons left to fight the demons if it doesn't work.
2: Yeah, it's very much a sort of last-ditch attempt, isn't it, to sort of do yeah. it? I think it might be useful and interesting to point out the way that One is is des- described in terms of ge- geography and the way it looks, because I always find that a fascinating part of the way that they set up the High Elves. It always seems to me that Ulthuan is analogous to... Um, Atlantis in a lot of ways, no. they, they sort of suggest that it's been created for them as an earthly paradise.
0: It, it was, uh, they did create part of it themselves and the old ones did create part of it because that's what you can get from some of the stories with uh, regarding what dragons basically say in the War of the Beard books, I think it is, or in the Sundering books, there's one dragon that talks to the rider and just, I've been here since before this was land, basically.
2: Yes, yes. I wondered about that. I've not read any of these books. I need to get into them, really. I've, been, I've got them on my uh, wish list on Amazon at the moment, so I need to press the button. Um, but uh, the, also the shape of Ulthuan, you know, it's this sort of, sort of, it's, you can tell it's a completely fantastical island. It, it looks like the kind of place that would have been made, you know, after yeah. some design, as opposed to some sort of natural geographical occurrence. It's, it, I remember when I was a kid looking at the map, it was a bit of a eureka moment when I suddenly realized it was the shape of a coiled dragon. And eating its own tail, which is a fantastic piece of imagery, um, and that relates to an old old myth about the worm Ouroboros, which is an um, alchemical um, symbol that's used in in the old in the real world practice of alchemy, um, and it's to do with eternity. It's always symbolised eternity and renewal and rebirth and things like that. So that relates directly to the phoenix concept as well. So they're all tied together in some sort of way. And then, of course, when you look in the middle of the map you get a slight suggestion that there's a yin and yang symbol going on there, which suggests the idea of balance and that that's what the elves were there for, to achieve balance somehow.
0: And they did, because they drained out of all of the chaos magic, all of, most yeah. of their own magic as well. And they had and to and actually... Nice
2: to do that yin and yang, isn't it? The Isle of the yeah. Dead with vortexes.
0: Yeah, which has been a uh, hotly contested zone so, during yeah. the history of this. But fantastic
2: piece of like descriptive description there. Very grimdark, very Warhammery. The way that it's just this field of bones. Um, the time flows differently. The, the armor and the weapons of these these rotted uh, combatants has, has not decayed, but their bodies have. Why is that? It's all very mysterious and grimdark, and it's it's great.
0: And in the center of it is uh, you can if you look into the vortex, you can see the outline of a mage with with outstretched arms channeling the magic. Lost in time because that's Calidor. He never uh, moved to the island.
2: Is this, is this on? Is this in um, Warhammer Total War or something else? Where have you seen that?
0: I think that's the description in or you know, the uh, te- somewhere. I, I I will try to look. Or I've just or it's just a fantastic image in my own head because that's how I see no, it. <laughs>
2: gets to the Sundering, so you might be remembering that um, which is, a, is another cataclysmic event that happens. Anyway, should continue with the Vortex stuff and, and what that results yeah.
3: in?
0: Well, they managed to drain out the magic. The demon, demon army is finally mortal. The ones that remain are finally mortal and the elves drive them back into the hell pitch they came from and start to rebuild. The bad part with all of this is an Aryan survived. Just but they have a few years left to live at this point. Mm-hmm. And it's it's not good because as we mentioned earlier, he still has Widowmaker, the sword of Cain. Mm-hmm. And he managed to produce another child. The child is Malekith.
2: Yes, he rescues sorry, I remembered now, he rescues. And this is the great thing about yeah. the sixth edition book is that the narrator who describes some of the history of the Elven Lands in the sixth edition book. He was there and apparently he, I think it's it's not him, it's his father. His father is the one who cut the chains from Marathi, who is the mother of Meliketh. And also any Dark Elf players will immediately recognize those two names. Um, she is rescued from a, apparently rescued from a band of Zanishi cultists or followers, or followers of the cult of pleasure or luxury, depending on what time it's being discussed in um, and she's so she's rescued by Anarion and then of course uses her, her wily ways to seduce him and make he obviously he's now he's now a, a widower because the ever queen is dead so he marries her and this is where the sort of the dark strand gets started really
0: and this is uh, because he still doesn't know that uh, his well the children from his first marriage are still alive
2: Ifrain and Morellion are the two the twin
0: kids. Morellion is the ancestor to Tyrion and Teclas.
2: Essentially, yeah, yeah,
0: which is why they are somewhat touched by the curse because it runs in the bloodline, even though
2: the male bloodline, yeah, yeah,
0: even though they weren't considered he was, Morellian wasn't conceived before he took up the sword, but its still a curse that runs in the family.
2: Ah, right. Yes, of course. So it's it's. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, to make that distinction, it's a curse that's been there even before the sword the Widowmaker's taken up, and even before he meets Marathi.
0: It's just enhanced and, well, mm-hmm. probably added on a whole new slew of yeah. curses. <laughs> but it uh,
2: just like Games Workshop like to
0: do. It uh, do end up with Anarion mounting his dragon for a final ride, riding up to the island and returning the sword moment yeah. before it dies mm. and thus ends the reign of Anarium, phoenix king
2: yeah it's, it's beautifully told in in the background um but that bit sort of isn't really touched on a great deal in the sixth edition book so they actually leave quite a lot of stuff out of the sixth edition book not as yeah. much detail um but i think that's to its benefit to a certain extent i mean it obviously helped if you read the other books because you, then, then you get to know a bit more of the history but um it's kind of nice because i think it leaves a lot to the imagination and um you sort of fill in the gaps yourself and i don't think there's a problem with that i'm a big fan of just sort of being creative with these sort of things
1: yeah it seems like you're it's more like you're just being thrust into a world yeah and sixth edition and you just kind of have to figure stuff out it's not really laid out before you, you yeah find you're
2: alive in a way because it's sort of it's you know you're just there and you just you're just implanted and you just have to get on with it <laughs> Indeed. So yeah, then we move on to the next Phoenix King, I suppose.
0: And that is Belsianar. Now we have reached the year of 4,419 before the imperial calendar started. So
2: Yes, because there's always a gap of one year between the crowning of one king, Phoenix King, and the next.
0: And this was a bit of a controversy to some. And that the, the controversy is that Malakith had assumed he would just uh, inherit the crone from his father, and Mal- uh, and uh, Morathi had uh, assumed that, that uh, she would be queen mother at this point. That yeah. would be
2: plotting and scheming. It's made sort of very obvious in sixth edition book the attitude of the elves towards these two characters, Malakith and Morathi. The way it's told in those in the sixth edition book is that they were always evil and that they uh, always plotted something. You know, and there are a couple of key Bits of history that get retold differently in sixth edition, which are told from a much more objective point of view in the earlier books. Uh, so I was finding when I was reading the earlier ones, refreshing myself, was that you kind of get the sense that you're not sure if Meliketh is bad to begin with, you know. But as if you if you come in straight to the sixth edition book, you're convinced straight away he's a bad guy.
0: Indeed. And that's uh, built a lot built on in uh, the Sundering books because the first one, which is Malekith, I think, mm-hmm. tells the story of his uh, rise and fall which is really nice to see because he was, well, I can, I can say it, He was a, he was a dick, but it wasn't evil.
2: <laughs> well, yeah, this is the other thing that gets mentioned is that he, he's called Malekith the Great for a while because he's the paragon of Elvish sort of heroism. He does incredible things. He founds, finds new lands. He fights he, against. He the founds
0: most of the colonies that they built, yeah. that built yeah. in the yeah. old world. Yeah. He befriends the dwarves, even though yeah. there were Elv- Elvish ambassadors at the court of the, High King for...
2: But this only in the range of the Phoenix King, doesn't it? So he's not made an envoy to the Old World just yet.
0: No, he just uh, builds up his power and maybe turns a blind eye to some of the cults. Mm-hmm. And least turns a blind eye or becomes completely oblivious to whatever his mother is up to back in uh, Nagarith, in mm-hmm. because Yeah, she, I guess maybe it helps. She's planning to overthrow... The Phoenix King at this point.
2: And this may have been a plan all along, but we don't. We never really know. I don't know. I've never read the Dark Elf book. I'm not a Sun Tzu player like uh, Niklas is, so I tend not to read <laughs> the army books of my enemies.
1: <laughs> I, I, recommend- uh, I, I like in 6th edition, uh, the, the High Elves, that it's written like Mark was always the bad guy because it seems like really like history is written by the winners and they just yes, yeah. imply yeah. that he was always evil we yeah. always knew this <laughs> we um, always.
0: almost written as the evil guy in the Dark Elf book as well which is really nice so it feels like he's embraced yeah,
2: that would it. be heroic to them
0: yeah. but I'd recommend reading the Sundering books that, that, uh,
2: yeah those are the three I've got on my um on my Amazon wish list that I need to press the button on
0: yeah because they tell so, this uh,
2: they, they've all got a they've all got a name haven't they all of the phoenix kings have a sort of a, a title so ainarion is i mean doesn't really he's just does he have a name does he have a sort of uh, title whereas Belshana is called the explorer the ainarion i don't think has one he's just the first essentially so you've got belshanar the explorer um he comes from tyrannoch he's a tyrannarchy so one of the provinces um and he uh yeah, he he is made king because uh, Melikith isn't deemed to be suitable. But in fourth edition, Melikith is is sort of described as sort of being this paragon of deference, and he bends the knee out of honor and respect, and so gains the respect of the elves as a result of that. So he's seen as this sort of honored person, and and continues to behave in that way for most of Balshanar's reign.
0: Yeah, and he knows that these are probably a, a ki- uh, according to himself, he's a better, better king. But what uh, the elves wanted after Nereid's death was a king that didn't have any interest in fighting.
1: Yeah, just they wanted rebuilding to
0: and uh, progress, progress. But are, and are they
1: still fighting against the demons at this point, or uh, did they all the
0: so demons are uh, have gone away?
2: Yeah, there's a brief respite, um, that, well, brief in Elvish terms, you know, it's a, hundred, a couple of hundred years, but
0: yeah. <laughs> they were building off, and they were, they were discovering the world, they were settling the old world, and they were settling other parts of the map as well, not just the yeah, old but, world. But, uh,
1: because Malik he was fighting with the dwarves, I remember, against... I don't know if they were demons or just beastmen or something like
2: that. Yeah, they're allies at this point. Um, That's why Balchanar, the Phoenix King, gets called the explorer, because he's founding new colonies and exploring the world. Um, And Meliketh is acting as his sort of chief envoy to the old world. So he's gaining all sorts of inside knowledge on the dwarves and things like that, which will come into play later.
0: Yeah, he knows all about them and how they would react if you uh, killed their prince.
2: He becomes an expert in dwarvish diplomacy, essentially.
3: Yeah.
0: And Arian's uh, cognomen was The Defender.
2: That's it, The Defender, which is why Tyrion then inherits that title. Yeah. Uh, but then, so while Meliketh is away, uh, for, you know, bringing in huge amounts of wealth to uh, th- through trade with the dwarves and so on, um, the cult of pleasure and decadence and luxury is rising, on the rise in, in the provinces of Ulthuan, and
0: uh, In uh, Nagaroth in particular, because that's where all of the yeah. priests, that's- so to speak, come from. Yeah. That's where Marathi
2: has chosen to make her seat as Queen Mother. And, um, it is in
0: Naryon's castle, so... The problem yeah, way. exactly.
2: Tor- Toran Neck, uh, which you mentioned at the beginning. Um, but when Meliketh gets back, he keeps playing a game, really, where he sort of pretends that he's really, really offended by all these cults springing up.
0: Well, at um, this point, he actually is offended because he leads the army to yeah. capture his mother.
2: Yeah, I mean, I I like to think that it's all just for show. You know, I'm more of a Game of Thronesy type. Yeah, <laughs> but,
0: but that's uh I'm just uh, trying to not mention stuff that's in the Sundering books. <laughs> at this uh, point. okay. So it's uh, or in the Malekith, because that's uh, they've done a really this, it's a really well told story on what uh, happened and how he fell, so to speak. Because she corrupts him. That's probably obvious
2: it's going to, uh, okay, well that kind of makes sense yeah, I, I kind of had that vibe as well reading some of the, the limited fluff that you get in the books.
0: Yeah, it's easy to corrupt someone when you can exploit their flaws and uh, their inherently doomed bloodline mm.
2: Yeah, absolutely But so uh... Meliketh becomes essentially sort of like an inquisitor or a witch hunter in this sense, he sort of starts uh, hunting down these cults and you know, mercilessly rooting them out and destroying them as much as he can. And it sort of reaches its peak when he eventually calls a meeting of all of the council, uh, who, who, who who usually the, the sort of the highest nobles of the provinces in Othwan. They usually determine who the king is through a sort of process of voting. Um, he calls a council and then eventually claims that Belshanaar himself, the Phoenix king, is a member of one of these cults. Yep. That it's is... Quite
0: at the end of the Civil War, after he's laid waste yes. to his own capital with the yeah. troops he called in from the colonies, it was a really nice, just oh wait, I can do this. I can challenge the entirety of the Nagarite army, which is the mightiest armed force on on the, on Alfon, with my own one that I built up in the colonies, that've been fighting yeah. Beastmen for yeah. five hundred years. Yeah,
2: that's it. I, I, you don't get that impression in the fluff, but I'm sure that's something that must be brought up in the Sundering trilogy.
0: Yeah. They also use uh, dwarven-made the crossbows at that point.
2: Ah, so we're starting to get the beginnings of dark elf technology. Yeah.
0: That's
2: interesting. Yeah, but he, so he accuses yeah. and Belchenar uh, is is either very ashamed, and, in, and there's several ways it gets told in the books. He's either so ashamed that he commits suicide himself by taking poison, or he is poisoned by Melikith, depending on which book you read.
0: Yeah, I'm not going to say anything right now.
2: Okay, all right. I thought I'd try and weed that one out,
0: but... <laughs> well, I could, I could, if you really want, I could say that uh, he's he's been suicided. He's been
2: suicided, okay. It's so depending
0: on uh, what what level of knowledge you are in the society, you probably know that he's either been murdered or he, that they committed suicide.
2: Yeah. So there are probably some elves who are led to believe, you know, noble sort of loyalist elves who think, oh, well, the king... Would never commit suicide. He must have been poisoned by Meliketh. And then there are ones who would prefer to have him be a coward and commit suicide rather than be, you know, rather than be outed as a member of a cult of pleasure. So then Meliketh yeah. does the crazy thing that he does next, doesn't he?
0: Well, he decides he's king.
2: He decides he's king, but he needs to make sure that he's chosen as king, doesn't he? He thinks he can be king, but before you can be king in offline you need to do something very
0: important. You need to pass through the flames of Assurion on the f- so, Nile. So
2: he does. That. And then everything goes wrong for him. <laughs>
0: well, he got, he catches fire, and <laughs> yeah, somehow oh, well. lives. Somehow
2: lives, yeah. Somehow yeah.
0: lives. And then he's rushed away by his followers to uh, his mother, who heals him mm-hmm. and encases him in armor because uh, yeah,
3: yeah,
2: yeah. I think the armor's made by um, a renegade priest of all. Yes. Yes. And he makes this armor, which is which is literally forged onto him. And because he's already passed through the flames and has endured all that pain, endured all the pain, he, he's able to somehow put up with that while the armor gets literally welded to his body.
0: Yeah, and this is the uh, the start. They don't know it yet, but this is a start of the sundering, the war that leads up to the breaking of Ulthoon.
2: Yeah, and we have the first Caladorian king after yeah. the old ones. So that moves you on to the next, the next king, Calador the First, the Conqueror. Yeah. Um, who I think is called Imric. Yep. Not Caldor, He's, uh, the, he, uh, the name.
0: he has the same name as the character in uh, 6th edition. F- r- yeah,
2: it's a, r- it? it's a bit like these old um, royal bloodlines. They all like to yep. keep repeating the names, don't
0: they? And his sons are, well, the II and Imladric, which is the dragon prince that uh, leads the armies of uh, in the War of the Beard. Yeah, so.
2: yeah. Yep.
0: And so he was because. the Calador the First was the grandson of uh, Calador the Dragon Tamer.
2: That's it. Yes. So there must have been another Calador between him, but he, maybe he was killed in all of the kin strife and the, the rooting out. No. Of the...
0: I think he's he was alive, but he didn't want the tr- throne. They gave it to Imric because he didn't want it. Ah, okay. But that's uh, all, That's in the second book. That's called Calador, of the Sundering Trilogy. Uh, of course, that fall <laughs> deeply into that. Yeah. But then, so, essentially,
2: we have a we have a state where caliber the First is inheriting a Othwain, which is essentially in a state of civil war. So it's a really yeah. turbulent time. And one of the details that I remember reading, I made a note of here, is that he too busy to marry the Everqueen, which is usually what you have to do when you become a the king you, you pass through the flames and this is the first account of passing through the flames where magical assistance is provided by mages to protect you or priests of all as they would be known um but then you're supposed to very quickly be carted off to get married to the ever queen as well and mm-hmm. uh, he doesn't do that because he's too busy because
0: <laughs> and she hasn't emerged at this point either not fully at least the new yes, ever queen so yes. she's is she's uh, still healing avalorn in the forest there but, uh, this uh, is an
2: interesting. Period because what I've got, and what I've tried to do with my notes is, I'm summarizing all the different sort of things that have happened. So you've got, like, each 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 king sort of leaves a legacy behind, and we had Anarion's legacy was the vortex, and then you've got Belshana's legacy being the colonies, um, and then you've got Calador's legacy, uh, which is an interesting part of the story, is the founding of the White Lions of Shrace, which is one of the key unit types in the army books. So he, yeah. he founds them, and there's we should, a,
0: prob- should probably mention before we go so far, that none of the archetypes that are in the sixth book, and that that when it comes to units, actually exist at this point. Yeah, that's there true. There are no armies of swordsmasters, there are no... Yeah. The spearmen and the archers are levy militia, basically. Yeah.
2: yeah, there's none of that. The, the only thing that might well exist are the dragon princes. Um, yeah, they probably do
0: exist. And uh, the reavers, but they did have a broader type in Illyrian at this point because they were reaver knights. So they yeah, were the either night. either armed as skirmishers or as heavy knights. Later, yeah, split up into silver They
2: were called uh, Raven Heralds.
0: Um, Those are uh, a mag- magical, magical. Uh, they're basically dark riders.
2: Yeah. So, dark, the,
0: from, 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 right. so they they become. Some of them work for Malkith. Some of them work for the Phoenix King.
2: So you've got a split really in Illyrian, which is the, the yeah. horse culture province in in one, where you're sort of either aligning yourself with Malakith or the True Phoenix King, and I guess what happens is the ones who align themselves to the True Phoenix King become Illyrian Reavers, and the ones who align themselves with Malakith become Dark Riders.
0: Yeah, this era is also when uh, Alithanar has his ascendancy. Uh,
1: um, I uh, always find that very fascinating with uh, the High as well. Like uh, it depends on where you're from, determines what kind of unitype you are like what kind of a warrior you will become. And they dedicate themselves entirely to that kind of fighting culture, which is very yeah. different yeah. from... Unless
0: you be are chosen to become a spearman, because that's from <laughs> anywhere. Yeah.
2: yeah, it's like a reference thing. And I guess it relates to the way that you have all the specialisms in Eldar craft world armies as well. They've sort of tried to sort of duplicate that here, where you kind of yeah. have who dedicate themselves to a certain martial discipline.
0: Yeah. But let's just summarize the war... Uh, in a few words, during the Nagarath army takes Tiranok and that city is levelled at the end. Yeah. Uh, oh, the,
2: the sort of western coast of Ultima essentially is now completely under the domain of
3: yeah. and his
0: followers. He recalls a lot of troops from the colonies, which weakens the colonies for like a thousand years to come. Mm-hmm. But, uh, and uh, they actually enact, because the lo- the loyalists, so to speak, forces are so desperate, they enact the uh, call of uh, c- civilian levies. They basically say, well, you have 500 peasants, 400 of those are spearmen now, because they need the troops. Mm-hmm. So they start training, because then they can take the more experienced troops uh, away from guard duty and... Uh, Go after Malekith, and at the end, they uh, succeed in uh, slowly pushing them back <laughs> towards uh, Anlek and uh...
2: back towards the coves, trying to trying yeah. to get rid of them essentially. But they're yeah. quite desperate, don't they? Malekith and his followers become quite desperate, and they... yeah,
0: they enact a ritual to a little ritual to an. The, the the scope of the ritual was to end more than what it did, but it ended up just uh, making, well, a nice new seafront of most of inner the inner part yeah. of uh, Agrigento. <laughs> yeah,
2: Nagarith now has a Riviera. Or, uh, yeah, or, uh, oh.
0: and most of Tiranoque became islands instead of uh, plains.
2: Yes, but we should say why, because the so the vortex is in state. It's it's being up. Op- it's it's working. It's siphoning yeah. off magic. All the mages are trapped in there, chanting forever and ever this, this chant because they know if they stop, it's going to ruin things. Uh, and Malekith and his mum decide that they're going to reverse the vortex because then they'll be yeah. able to get some free demonic allies. Uh, they won't have to pay points cost for them in their army.
0: And drain enormous amount of magic because as we know, bo- both of them are incredibly powerful mages. Yeah. Malekith... Even have a crown from made from a mystical metal that might belong to yeah. like the Bone Reapers from Age of Sigma. I'm not sure, but they are it's similar. Described in a lot of
2: pre-human settlement that he yeah. discovered on his, his trips. But it's also important yeah. to know they've also got under their banners at the moment. They've also got a whole load of um, renegade sorcerers and mages who, who believe in them. Yeah. and, and uh,
0: them. So about uh, half of the elven army.
2: Yeah, exactly. <clears throat>
0: So they had to, to, yeah.
2: So they they try and undo that. They start they start trying to do it, and um, uh, Calidor and all of his trapped mage buddies in the vortex decide that they're not going to have their work undone, so fight back. And I think this is where you got your Im- piece of imagery from. Yeah,
0: it basically. might be here
2: because it's described in that way they sort of these these booming titanic uh, beings of light come out of the vortex for a split second uh, in a retaliatory sort of magical burst and um, essentially thwart the undoing of the vortex but in the process cause this massive um, cataclysm which essentially uh, disrupts all of the waystones that are keeping off one afloat um, and parts of it slip into the sea and I like the symbology of this because essentially the dragon loses its wings. So Nagarith yeah. and some of Tyrannoch slip into the sea. Um, and I think it's even stated that the the shockwave from this event is is, is recorded in the Dwarven. I don't know. I, I was wondering, Niklas, how that's written about, if it is in the Dwarven books.
1: Uh, not much at all. Like the Elven Civil Wars way. is something they hear from Elven yeah, merchants. but the shockwave... Uh, they
0: didn't really know about the Elven Civil War because the Elves didn't tell them about it.
1: Yeah. I, I, I haven't written, or I haven't I seen anything uh, written about it's,
2: it. It's an interesting little note that they put in the books where they're sort of saying, "Oh, and it's even recorded in the Dwarven books, so therefore it must have been really powerful."
0: Yeah, um, but the shockwave possibly, more. shockwave possibly passed around the world a couple of times, like uh, when really large uh, volcanoes go off.
2: It's a big deal, essentially. It's a really big deal, um, and the sundering is this—you know—got a wonderful, epic-sounding name to it. Um, causes a massive, massive problem, uh, but a lot of the mages are able to keep some of their cities afloat, aren't they?
0: Yeah, um, and they sail, sail, sail them, quote unquote, the north to.
2: I absolutely love this idea. I mean, my my full-time, normal day job is as an architect. So some of this, some of the sort of these interesting architectural related things are fantastical i find them amazing so the idea that you could make a whole city float or a whole castle float is astonishing and of course it, it, it the only way you do that is with magic so uh, i find that like as, as an image incredible and the idea of these black arcs is really really powerful as well
1: yeah so they sail them to nagaroth right
2: yeah, they run away to Nagaroth and they leave some of the Black Arcs to patrol the seas so that the Elves won't come after them, the High Elves won't come after them. And I think after this, Calador First builds the gates between the Annuli Mountains. So the way that Olfan is structured as a piece of geography is you've got the Annuli Mountains, which ring ring the dragon, essentially the spine of the dragon. And you've got the Outer Kingdoms, which are all war-torn and, and um, you know, have all sorts of invasions happening to them all the time. And they have a proper weather cycle of summer, spring you know autumn and winter and all that stuff the inner kingdoms beyond the annuli mountains because the annuli is being used to focus the vortex um, and a null which is where they get their name from a some of the magic uh, the inner kingdoms are protected in many ways uh, but they also have an, an eternal summer as a result of this so all okay. the inner kingdoms which are calidor safari avalon and illyrian are in this perpetual golden summer all the time because of the annuli mountains and the annuli act as a sort of natural barrier to invaders, but uh, they have a couple of key passes, which are often sort of hotly contested bits of land. That Calidore very sensibly decides to build some massive gates, and this is where my architectural interest comes in again, because I, I think of these giant structures and what they must be like. So they've got, I think, what was it five different gates: Griffin, Phoenix, Eagle, Dragon, and Unicorn gates, and they're yeah. all at different parts of the mountains.
0: Follow the passes from the coast to the inland.
2: Yeah, and they they become, you know, later in the history, they become massively contested gates. Really interesting.
1: Yeah, they must be truly massive. Mm-hmm. I you started reading the War of the Beard uh, and the gates at Toralessi that took, I don't know, how many sieges and they didn't even break them.
2: 14, I think. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and they That'd still didn't manage to get into the city through the gate, pretty much. I think so, they sneaked yeah.
0: their way in. So they sacked the walls and then blew them yeah. up from the, from beneath.
1: Yeah. So I can only imagine uh, these gates built in a mountain chain must be truly massive.
0: To be fair, if the Darkers had uh, Dwarven allies, they were probably had th- down ages ago. <laughs> the Darkers tried to attack them from the front and uh, from the top, not from beneath. So.
2: Yeah, exactly. So We don't want to
1: make their clothes dirty
2: is the, he's got a lot happens in his reign, really. You know, the the gates are built, the White Lions of Shrace are founded as the bodyguard of the king. And then the sundering happens, which is one of the biggest events in the history of, of all three elf races, I think. Yeah. So he's, so Calador, how does he die? He, so he dies. Uh, okay. So he's reclaiming the blighted isle. Yeah. That,
0: Calador of- got the bad end for a great king. as it, the quote goes. Did, that's,
2: that's the exact quote. Yeah, that's it. After um, to
0: fall into the hands of the Witch King's servants and die a miserable, ignoble death, Calador jumped into the sea, clad in full armor, and committed suicide. Thus passed Calador the Conqueror. It was a bad ending for a great king.
2: Yeah, what a way to go. <laughs> Just sunk to the bottom in your yeah, fall. But
0: he did yeah. the right thing. Imagine the token. He would he would never have died if he were captured by the Dark Elves.
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah, they love to torture. <laughs>
0: And given that uh, the band, the guy on the banner for the Mangel Mannheim's Manfred is still technically alive because his soul is trapped in his skin, imagine what they would do to a king. king. Need to know, oh dear,
3: that's
2: grotesque and beautiful at the same time. (laughs) So then we get the second, who is a bit of an idiot.
0: (laughs) Yeah, he's the second of his name, as they say.
2: warrior instead of the conqueror so he's not as cool as a conqueror he's just a warrior he fights a bit but he doesn't win yeah it depends on your point of view nicholas
0: (laughs) he dies at the hands of Gothric starbreaker i'm assuming nicholas
2: knows who this is
1: (laughs) yeah know all about this guy (laughs) okay well he well he doesn't start the war of the beard but he definitely did not finish it when he before it started properly
0: Had elves had a competent leadership, they would probably yeah. not have been as weakened as they are in the current timeline.
2: So I think, well, we, we've we sort of discussed it a little bit before, but Meliketh is essentially the one who causes the War of the Beard for all intents and purposes, through various bits of trickery. Um, he realised
0: that he couldn't defeat Alfon on his own.
2: That's it. So he wants to cause a split in the forces. He wants to cause them to fight on two fronts Yeah. To get the other hand.
0: And uh, since the high elves never told them the dwarves about the dark elves, because why should they? That would just be logical. Mm-hmm. They they didn't believe them when they claimed that there was an, oh, another evil race of elves trying to sabotage the peace. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, it doesn't sound very plausible as well. <laughs> like, oh no, it was my, my evil cousin, Gary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. <laughs> like, well, yeah. you're all the
3: then,
2: same to
0: me. Now, now we're all the, the, the evil twin, the parallel universe beards on the dark elves. That's that's it. It. So mm-hmm.
2: basically ambushes a Dwarvish trading caravan, doesn't he? And um, yeah. they take it as but, a huge fight.
1: Yeah, it's, it's several incidents.
0: Yeah. Oh, is it? it? Uh, the, I'd say there's several, depending on which part of the lore you read. If you read the army books, it's like one or two. If you read the War of the Beard, the War, of, War of Vengeance Chronicles mm-hmm. the trilogy, there's several of them and they're Ambushing certain certain rune lords and stuff like that, so just picking their targets to make them as annoyed as possible.
1: Yeah, there, there's this dwarf uh, dwarf book that has several books in it, the chronicles, kind of thing, uh, or omnibus. Mm-hmm. And in that one, there's a, like a very intricate uh, ploy against the dwarfs, where the dark elves are just playing both the high elves and the dwarfs to uh, do bad yeah. shit against each other, and it builds up and builds up until. There's war pretty much
2: weaving a web of malice
1: yeah <laughs> nice
2: nice work melaketh <laughs>
0: yeah but it works and, so we
2: get uh, more of beard and it's it depletes both sides the dwarves and the elves fight for ages over this slight uh the key detail that i like is the dwarf emissary being having his beard shaved and sent back
0: yeah. um, he, against the recommendations of kalidor ii's advisors because oh, said, this is what will happen if you do this. You will have an unending war if you do this.
2: But he's a hothead, so yeah. he does it. He, he,
0: is, he was someone that embodies the, the thing that you should not inherit power. You should earn power.
3: Yeah. yeah. He,
0: was, he was raised to be king, which is why he didn't ha- didn't feel like he had to deal with the consequences of being king. Mm. He was entitled <laughs> to power.
2: There's a couple of interesting things that I remember reading about now in this, where where the dwarf, in terms of the dwarves' perspective on this, they kind of don't really, they think it's kind of unthinkable that they, there should ever be a civil war. They don't, because they would never fight against their liege lord. So that's part of the reason why they think that they're lying. Yeah.
0: <laughs> they are also people that uh, deny the existence of chaos dwarves.
2: Ah, yes, true. Good point. Well raised.
0: Because <laughs> no dwarf would ever fall to chaos. Oh, yeah. So you know, Yeah. So what there there might be a bit of hypocrisy there.
2: Um but anyway, Canador does meet his end eventually, doesn't he? Calador the second. another ignoble end.
0: Well, he tries to fight the uh, Gotric Starbreaker and rolls once <laughs> on every roll yeah. he's ever made.
2: All his armor saves, everything. Yeah. Yeah. Um, foolishly also wears the crown of the Phoenix King into battle. The only Phoenix King to do that, because he was that arrogant. He <laughs> into battle and, of course, gets his head chopped off, and then Gotrick Starbreaker runs off with the with the big shiny hat, because it's... Yeah, he, he counts yeah. It and, and
1: just uh, goes, uh, well, that's it. I win. I got your I crown. Yep.
0: <laughs> that's the set, that's settlement. That well, I got the elven crown, now the war is over. Uh, yeah. uh, Let's let just... Uh, Stop burning down this great city that yeah. took you uh, a thousand years to build, and just go home. Yeah,
2: let's stop chopping down all the, all the virgin forests, because we know that pisses you guys off. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. So just runs back to uh, Everpeak and puts the crown deep in a vault, and the elves are planning on actually assaulting the mightiest they fortress
3: yeah.
1: in the world, but then uh, the dark elves attack again, and they have to yeah. leave the tree-
0: and They return to Elfland.
2: Yeah, so this moves us on to the
0: next king. There is uh, just one king thing king. before this that happens before we go to oh, Balinor, yeah. and that is that some of the refugees of the Elven cities that are left in uh, the Old World are uh, basically adopted by the Trees to settle an old debt. This yeah. is this is fluff that isn't in the sixth Dead Book that comes later, but it all ties nicely nicely together because the 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 Tree Spirits want their due for saving. Malerian and Yvret, and the the Woodles are born.
2: Because that's where they've been. Yeah, of course, that makes sense. Yeah, that's a nice way of tying that up. It's quite nice the way that the fluff sort of has a sense of continuity between the books. There was there was some yeah. connected thinking going on.
0: Yeah, and it's also nice when they, instead of just rewriting the exact same stories every time, expand on some, or maybe takes in another writer so just to just get another perspective on something.
2: So we you then get Karadriel the peacemaker um, that's his name he's from Yvris yeah. the province of Yvris which is one of the outer kingdoms one of the most famous kingdoms probably because of Eltharion the Grim who we'll probably hear about later on um, he uh, so so the Melikith has managed to divide the forces of the high elves so he's now able to reclaim Nagareth uh, and the Blighted Isle with the shrine of Ashuran so this these two bits of Ulthuan are the most contested pieces of land in the whole of the, la- the, whole of the, the, the provinces. Um, and he also apparently establishes Tor Anlek again um, and turns it into a fortress city. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when Caradriel is made the Phoenix king, elected the Phoenix king, he imme- he's a very sort of circumspect king. He's much more sort of um, sensible, less warlike, less impetuous. Um, and he immediately just sort of says... Well, the most important thing is we've got to protect Ulthuan. I need to recall my forces from the Old World, abandon the Old World, essentially, because it's more important that I keep the realm rather than the crown. Uh, he And then he orders the very sensibly orders another crown to be made, which is easy enough to do, um, and then starts getting on with trying to defend the rest of Ulthuan from Maliketh. Um, And as you said, Chris, that is when Athol Lauren officially claims independence after yeah. being abandoned.
0: And that's where... So th- then
2: if the Peacemaker was really the, the Wood Elves as a separate faction. So you've got his legacy being the Wood Elf, really.
0: And at this point, they weren't only in Aethelorn. They were settled within the Lakai, which was basically the great forest that covered the Empire down to Aethelorn and a bit further south as well. Even though the dwarves... Yeah, and the
1: Kissel as well.
0: Yeah. And the dwarves did manage to chop down quite a lot of it during the war, but not all of it. Which is why the trees wanted the elven spirits to defend them.
2: <laughs> um Kadril is also a really sensible Phoenix King. He um he knows that he's no natural general or commander. So he appoints field a uh, field commanders as to, to sort of act as the tactical arm um, of his his kingship. Um, and they do a really good job of sort of keeping the Dark Elves at bay. Um and they also introduce a system of rotating fresh troops to all the, the gates that or the First made. Um yeah, so that and the, reinforcing the Lord, those that said gates the Dark Elves. It was
0: more of a great administrator than a battle.
2: Yeah. And it's telling because when he does die, eventually, I'm not sure how long his reign is, actually. It's probably long. Close 500 years. 500 years. He dies peacefully, and he's one of the only ones to do that, to die peacefully in his bed.
0: Yeah. And that is probably because he gave up, because elves can live technically forever. Yeah. Yeah. So he's felt, ah, I'm old enough. I've done this. I've done my bit. Yeah. So then must sign be something. There another must be piece something. of paper. There must, yeah. uh, there must be something that works on immortality. If I
2: have on one piece of paper telling a general that it's okay to do the thing that he wants to do, then <laughs> I, think I might just have to myself.
0: <laughs> his uh, successor was uh, Thethlis, and he reigned for so, about 300 years. Yeah,
2: the phoenix king, I think.
0: Yeah. and... Uh, the slayer. Yeah, and, and it's uh, during this uh, reign that the dragons started to uh, go back to sleep. Yeah,
2: the waning of the dragons. So for some reason, it's quite mysterious, isn't it? I guess maybe because there's less magic in the world or something.
0: There's theories that they were actually feeding on the magic before Mm. everything went wrong. Or that it's just not their time anymore. But they noticed this even during the War of the Beard because they had they been able to rouse all of the dragons of Kalidor, there wouldn't have been a war.
2: True. Come on, get up. Uh, Secret weapon.
0: (laughs) Do something. Get up. Get up. Uh, yeah, definitely. He was a hothead. He was... Well, yeah,
2: he's ruthless, isn't he? He's. They call him yeah. a slayer for a reason. He basically really hates the Dark Elves. He's lived his whole life uh, seeing what they've done. Yeah,
0: and they like killed the his... Dark killed his parents well, yeah. in front of his eyes. And given yeah. that the main event of his uh, reign is called the Scouring, it should uh, yeah. probably set a tone on who he was as a king.
2: Yeah, definitely, <laughs> sounds like sort of biblical connotations there. But he is also a ruthless tactician as well. I've got in my notes here that he is the Sun Tzu of Ulthwan, because he is—he never commits troops to a battle unless he's certain of a win.
0: And he always, um, uh, always tried new tactics. He hid an army yeah. to ambush the Dark of army assaulting the Griffin Gate, and basically, and almost destroy, destroyed it on, until it required the intervention of Malekith himself. Ah, right. So that was that, that kind of total victory was his
2: <laughs> yeah, so a complete massacre. But the other thing he does is he finds the armor of Arnerion on the Blighted Isle after he reclaims that as well. So he finds um, the armor, but not the body of Unerion or the body of the dragon, just the armor.
0: Yeah. They, uh, uh, he wanted to carry the war after he had driven the Darkness out of the. Uh, day when he wanted to carry the war to Darton to the Nagarothis soil. He wanted to chase them over the seas. He
3: did, he
2: did. and he he has a really interesting end, actually, because
3: <laughs> yeah. it's
2: the most conflicted end, and also gives you a real indication of how weird the altar of Cain is on the Blighted Isle. So after he's reclaimed it, he finds the armor of Anarion, um, and gifts it to Auralion, who's the great grand grandson of Morelion, who's the yeah. son of Arion, uh, and obviously it sounds he like Tolkien. It, yeah, it sounds mad, doesn't it? Eventually, this armor f- finds its way into the hands of Tyrion, who's a much easier name to remember because it's not got so many A's in it. Um, so, uh, yeah, but then after he's done this, he obviously approaches the altar of Cain, and the sword in there is sort of whispering all sorts of promises to him. Um, and uh, I'll let Chris tell the story because it's a fun one.
0: He later died under most mysterious circumstances. Some claim that he was slain by a dark elf assassin hiding among the bones surrounding the sword of Cain others that he, that he attempted to draw the weapon, and as it began to come free, he was murdered by his own bodyguard, feared the unleashing of the sword's terrible power. Whatever the truth of the matter, Tethlis did not return from the blighted isle, and Azur Armada sailed home.
2: Yeah, so I, lo- I love that as a little bit of um, sort of ambiguous storytelling. They leave little fragments in the fluff there to let you decide what happened.
0: Yeah, and I think that the story of that it was a darkness assassin that did it is what the bodyguards are <laughs> try to make up after after they
2: killed him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's that's what I I think I believe as well. Really. But, I think it's also they're the white lines of trace at this point, And we all know that they're yeah. super honor honorific and you know they don't want to see Othwan turned into some sort of dystopia. So they would probably have done that.
0: Yeah and at this point which you mentioned that his commanders and the General leadership of the entire elven race felt that he had become a bit too bloodthirsty and the, the hatred he was feeling was on par with Anarion and it would yeah. just probably destroy them if he took up the blade.
2: Yeah, so they want to want to nip that in the bud when they can. But that's how he meets his end. He's just killed by his own bodyguard. So there's lots of like parallels to Roman emperors here in the stories of the Phoenix kings because they all have, meet some sort of grisly and interesting end.
0: But they did. They do manage to rule for more than like five weeks before the Praetorian Guard finds some someone else to <laughs> lead them.
2: So, but after the Slayer, after the ruthlessness of him, we have two kings who are quite peaceful, and sort of we have a long period of peace for the for the High Elves in North one
0: That's uh, both good and bad, and now we are yep. starting to edge closer to the founding of the Empire because the first one is since on the throne from the year. Six hundred and ninety-one before the imperial calendar. That's okay.
2: Bel- right. So when, when this is my favorite one, I think. Um kohadris the scholar, because he's very peaceful. He just is sort of a bit of an eccentric. He's the first Saffirian or, or the first king to be elected from the realm of Safri, or where all the mages study um he his you know he so lots of lots of a time of unequaled peace occurs and i'm sure that other stuff must be happening to the dark elves at this point they're possibly fighting chaos or something else um or building up their resources for a counterattack because they've essentially been thrown off of all one by the slayer yeah. by Mithlis. um and you get bel kohadris the scholar and he Wants to gather as much information as possible, so he's gathering all kinds of lore and history and wisdom and knowledge to to him, and decides to build the White Tower of Hoeth. So this is his major legacy, where he wants yeah. to store all of the knowledge and um, for the betterment of the Elvish, Elvish race. And starts he also starts a thing called the Book of Days, which is sort of like a census or a, a history of the elves, because he's starting to recognize how important that sort of thing could be. Um, And he also founds the Order of the Lawmasters of Hoeth. And the
0: Order of Swordsmasters. Yeah.
2: Well, it's interesting the way that they're presented, because it seems like they were wandering, sort of. They were already there as a sort of loose order. of, And I like this because they feel a little bit like um, samurai or something. They're wandering the realms anyway. Um, But they get attracted to this place because it becomes a place of learning and, and um, wisdom and control and that's all what they're kind of all about is sort of mastery of themselves
1: I don't know if, it, uh, if this has been an oversight but I remember reading about these guys in the War of the Beard So about the swordmasters? Uh, yes, swordmasters
0: there's, there's been similar battle formations before but not they weren't technically these swordmasters sword in the War of the Beard if you go by the later fluff if you go by the earlier fluff, they are
2: yeah, Fine. it's a bit confusing
0: <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, you have to, the, all of the archetypes did exist during the War of the Beard, like you had the spearmen and the archers, these different kinds of spearmen and archers and reavers yeah. and knights and stuff. They've
2: like not that. been codified into the form that you see them in the reign of Finnebar the Seafarer, which is yeah. when, when all books are published, essentially.
0: Can I see that, uh, I w- wonder if he built the tower after, because all of the floating cities of Saffrey was destroyed at this point, the old one.
2: Yeah, there's loads of interesting ways that the, the various kind of eccentric mage princes or wizard princes of Safri get described. They they all have, they're all kind of like interested in weird little things and one of them, is, I think, there's a name of one who's sort of interested in just growing green things. So his floating, you know, wizard tower is covered in sort of ivy and, and has a, these massive gardens full of uh, interesting rare plants and breeds of of, you know flower and stuff like that so you kind of get all these very eccentric mages who are interested in just gathering knowledge and learning about the world um i didn't know about that though so there was some sort of central uh government location for saf for safari and that was destroyed
0: yeah one of those great the greatest of those cities was destroyed yeah. during the summer
2: to build the white tower to replace it
0: during his reign uh, they had have an increasingly difficult time with all of the wildlife and as well, all of those lovely chaos corrupted wildlife from the Anuli mountains. mountains. So they
2: get, have to spend a lot of time sort of fending off. Yeah,
0: those. so he, he did a like a his first decree as phoenixing was we're gonna have a great hunt, hunt the right. manticores, hunt the uh, yeah, something, whatever else you can find living in the mountains, yep. and
2: killer wolves. Yeah, so he he, he reigned for quite a while, and nothing really that bad happens for all intents and purposes. Um,
0: he reigned he until four nine nine of the imperial calendar. So
2: so he lived. How long did he live
3: for?
0: So that his reign was from uh, six nine one to 499. Uh, four nine nine. He's quite a long-lived one. Yeah, so it's almost within uh, like eight hundred years. Yeah, that's a
2: pretty long time. Um, and he's one of the only phoenix kings to not be taken to the isle of the dead to be buried because usually when a phoenix king dies the mysterious phoenix guard turn up as if as if they knew when and where to be and they whisk away the body right. of the phoenix to the isle yeah. of the dead on a watch they ship. do
0: know when and where to be that's why mm-hmm.
2: they can't speak that's why they can't talk yep they've sworn an oath that's of that's why they f- f- cause fear yeah in some in some books yeah, yeah. <laughs> in some editions <laughs> <laughs> they do very glad of it because in other books they're completely overlooked they only they get they get award save in seventh i think um some people still think they should always have had immune psychology as a rule but we can talk about that later
0: yeah then we go into the reign of the 80s 80s i like that he was also prince of safari
2: yeah and he's called the poet so yeah. you have the scholar belco who was buried in the foundations of the white tower And there's a story about his ghost still haunting the the vaults and crypts of the White Tower. And people seeking knowledge can sometimes encounter him, Harry potter style Yeah,
0: And that's why they generally take the Phoenix Kings away. Yeah.
2: (laughs) So then Athos, the poet, inherits the, the crown. Um, and this is often, his reign is often counted as the sort of high watermark of elvish culture and society. So this is when all of the great works of art, the magnificent weapons and armor and acts of craftsmanship get created and some of the greatest works of architecture probably get created as well. Um, they talk is about it, a lot of things in the books.
1: Is it, it's like a bit of a renaissance, that, yeah. I guess. Yeah.
0: yeah, this is the high point of elven society because during this time it's also when they stop reproducing in you know, a great number, yeah. so yeah. Every, every elf that dies doesn't get replaced in any way.
2: And they've mm. had peace now for almost eight hundred years, haven't they? So yeah. that's not that,
0: that's not good for elves, is it? Mm. Mm.
2: Not, no, not really, as we'll find out.
0: Yeah, but then <laughs> this good. time, this time they did carve a five hundred feet high griffin out of the mountain next to the griffin gate. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, this is the time when the Lothern grew from, well, it was a city, it was technically a city before, but it became what it is now, what it is in the yeah. current time.
2: Yeah. becomes the chief trading port of the whole world, becomes the biggest and most yeah. wealthy trading port of the whole world. Um, and there's also some discussion about the beautification of Shreis, um which I find interesting. So yeah. they that for some reason, I guess Shreis must have been quite ugly,
0: and uh, it might have been quite ugly to the eyes yeah. of the king.
2: Aethis, or Aethis decides he needs to beautify it and instructs sculptors and artisans to go around, you know, creating beautiful statues. Yeah. And and these sculptures.
0: lovely pine forests, full with wildlife and lovely streams right. and rivers, they're not good enough. We need to carve something out of the mountains.
2: Well, I'm I'm just imagining like you know, giant Washington Monument type elf faces in yeah. the mountains of Shreis, that sort of thing. You every
0: every river that passes through a mountain got to get those uh, statues from the uh, Argonauts. The Argonauts, yeah. yeah, the Argonaut. <laughs> yeah. Every, everywhere they can put them. Just. Like, yeah. you have, like you're playing sims and needs to get your sim yeah. happy. And just, I'm going to place eight posters on this wall because they give bonus to happiness.
2: Yeah, or or civilization when you have to build some sort of wonder of the world to give your... Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that sort of thing. So that's what's going on when the basis of the poet is in rain. uh, But at the same time, because of everyone sort of experiencing a lot of peace and relaxation, the cult of luxury starts to creep its way back in because elves can't be left alone for too long and they start doing naughty things.
0: And this is probably why there wasn't any word or invasion from uh, the Dark Elves, they were trying a new tactic again, just to weaken the from inside. Yeah, because uh, his uh, closest uh, confidant and the, the chancellor of the court was a spy for, for Nagaroth, yeah. for the Witch King,
2: being a Nagarothi spy, as it turns out. Yeah. So I think Aethis then sort of appoints the Swordmasters. This is the first time that the Sword Masters get used as a sort of inquisitorial force. So they sort of get used as a as a martial force yeah. going around rooting out these cults and putting them to the sword and, and you know, trying to deal with all of the corruption and rot inside this incredibly decadent 800-year-olds of years of peace society that has, has resulted. Um, and I think Bel- Bel- uh, so, sorry, not Belcaradris de- decides he's reached the culmination of his investigations into these cults and um, is called a meeting of all of the council, including the chancellor of the court. And it turns out he's one of his best friends and he ends up stabbing him, um, uh, sort of Roman emperor style.
0: As he was unmasked, he drove a poisoned dagger through Aesir's hearth, and so the eighth phoenix king was slain by a trusted friend.
2: Uh, So much drama. Yeah. (laughs) So much drama with these elves.
0: Yeah, but that's also quite, as I said, typical. If you go by Roman standards, that's what happened. Yeah. You, you get yeah. killed by a, someone that should be your friend.
3: Yeah.
2: <laughs> and this is what's quite fun about the elves in a way. I've always liked the whole intrigue at court thing, the idea that they're this sort of subtlety and nuance that's involved in their interpersonal relationships. and The way that they vie for power is kind of cloak and dagger and, and all to do with the way that things are said in court. You know, all this stuff. I find that fascinating. It feels very Shakespearean in a way.
1: Yeah, it's really good.
2: Then we move on to Morvale the Impetuous the Phoenix the ninth phoenix king and he's from Yvresse um, mm-hmm. he i think at the time was high law master of the white tower of Hoeth so he's a magic using phoenix king um, and his first and the reason he gets his name the impetuous is because his first act was essentially uh, having you know been made aware that the f- previous king was assassinated he orders a punitive attack on Nagaroth as a way of sort of saying yeah. screw you guys
0: and um, uh, that went Great, as everyone yeah. knows, that at this point the darkels were defeated and were not a problem in uh, the world anymore. Mm-hmm. Or was it that the, the elf fleet was dispatched to cold north and was massacred by the darkels?
2: Yeah, well, the elf fleet had been run down because more money was being spent on sculptures in shrace Yeah, so
0: a handful of trained soldiers in the in, in, you see like yeah well the the regimented soldiers and then a whole host of peasants that probably hadn't held a spear until that morning they were sent away.
2: Yeah, landlubbers. Yeah. Um, And they they were essentially massacred, weren't they? So that doesn't really go very well. Um, uh, The Dark Elves in this time, it turns out, have been spending it very wisely, and they've been enslaving humans and other races. They've now got a whole army of slaves as well, which they didn't have before.
0: Yeah, they built some black arcs that they didn't have before. They enslaved yeah. some sea serpents. Yeah,
2: they've been enslaving monsters of all kinds. So yeah. This is when you really start to get the Dark Elf character of enslavement really coming into its fore. So they then obviously get a bit annoyed and um, <laughs> start retaliating themselves. So uh, they come back, a, dark, a giant Dark Elf armada seizes the Blighted Isle again. They get back Toranlek again and Nagarith again. You can sense a bit of repetition going on here. Um, But Morveil, after his first bit of impetuous behaviour, very wisely appoints a Calidorian general as his field commander to act on his behalf, because he must recognise as a mage, as a wise person to a certain extent, although he's quite rash, um, that he needs someone adept at warfare to defend against this retaliatory force. And it says in the books that Mantheus is actually the one so this is Mantheus of Calidor, he's a, the field commander. He establishes the citizen levy properly. So he starts yeah, to sort of
0: But that varies from
2: it does vary, doesn't it? Yeah, because yeah. in some books they say that it's it's Morvale, in some books they say it's Mantheus, in some yeah. books yeah,
0: it's In some books they say it's uh, the council that decides it uh, during yeah. the sundering, the war of sundering. But that might, might just have been a temporary levy because they still had an army at that point that, so it could that it. Yeah. and maybe this is what
2: in, integrates it as a more sort of permanent part of elvish society
0: yeah did you so have this, your uh, rotation uh, oh, sorry did you have your rotation in the spearmen yeah. or archer companies that you just have to do it
2: allows a dwindling race as we've already discovered during the reign of ethos the poet it allows a dwindling race with a small populace to essentially raise a full-time well not a full-time army but an army a part-time army at a moment's notice whenever they need to, so they can then sort of have a martial force that can at least equal the forces of other nations who are much more, you know, m- um uh, while still, you know, being quite a small and dwindling race.
0: Yeah. It was desperately needed to fill out the ranks, because otherwise they had a few hundred swordsmasters, a couple of shadow warriors, and uh, yeah. some horse guys from Illyrian. The only to, real professional and soldiers. And the, in the, sea, in the sea guard, of course, but yeah. the men fleet. But they were mostly traders at this point as well, after 800 years of peace.
2: Yeah, and everyone else had probably just given up the sword or the spear or the axe and uh, decided to become a painter or a poet or a sculptor.
1: Yeah, you need a whole host of sculptors for Christ. Yeah, an army
2: of sculptors (laughs) was raised from Trace essentially. (laughs) So yeah, Uh, Morveil... Is sort of becomes this quite grim, dark, and um, you know, somber character because he is also trying to root out the Sunishi cults as at the same time. So, and he's also conscious of the fact that he's probably woken up the dark elves and brought them back to Wolfland. So, he feels quite conflicted about his role in that. His impetuous and rash nature has come back to haunt him. So, and he's always signing these death warrants for cult leaders and things like that. So, he becomes quite. Uh, worn down by all this, because he he oversees almost a century of warfare and strife between you know yeah. elf, elf on elf warfare. Um, but he does build the fortress of dawn and the citadel of dusk.
0: Yeah, the fleet, Those are his fleet, fleet bases of the new new and improved elven fleet because they did improve the elven fleet at this time because they had to. They were f- fighting off the dark elf slave ships and uh, trying to protect elfon and the world from uh, the the Black Arcs.
2: So they've realised how important it is to keep their navy at full strength.
0: Yeah. And the fortress has also protected its trade routes which it needed to yeah. stay alive.
2: And to Lustria. Yeah. So the Citadel of Dusk is, is basically on the Cape of Good Hope at the bottom of the <laughs> real world. And the, uh, what is it, the the um, Fortress of Dawn is in Cathay. So I'm not sure where that would be analogous to in the real world, but it's... Um, Essentially, just the gateway. Isn't to the it, uh,
1: it's like Singapore?
2: It? Yeah. yeah, it probably would be like that. Or Hong Kong, maybe.
0: Since uh, Australia doesn't really exist, it might be somewhere there as well. Be, yeah. I think it varies from different maps as well, because I think most of the maps we see are drawn from either copies of copies of copies of copies of maps or like empire maps.
2: Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> you build those colony, those those impressive Fortress of Dawn and Citadel of Dusk, and. Uh, eventually, when the war between the Dark Elves reaches its peak, um, Manthius of Calidore is besieging Toranlek. So he's dr- brought the fight to the Dark Elves at their historic capital in Nagareth. And while this, this siege is happening, Morvale has become, Morvale the Impetuous, the Phoenix King, has become racked with all kinds of guilt and gloom. And he secludes himself in the Shrine of Asuran to await the outcome of this siege because he thinks it's going to be the deciding part of the conflict. Um, and when, uh, but before he gets the news that Anlek has fallen to Mantheus of Calidor, um, and he he hears that Mantheus has been slain along with his dragon Nightfang, uh, who goes berserk and slaughters all the elves. Um, they tend he, to
0: do that dragons when they, you kill the rider. That's their that's their,
2: um, their that's their behaviour when they get some freedom. <laughs> Um, so he becomes sort of Morvel is really depressed uh, and basically abdicates the throne by walking into the flame of Asuran again. So he burns to death, um, and obviously has not got the yeah. protection of the priests at that point. So he's he's probably was he the second Phoenix king to commit suicide?
0: Oh, yeah, or be su- the first one. was either suicide or suicided? Like, like yeah, suicided. Someone, but
2: someone I'd say suicide. two. Yeah. You've got one who's, who's death by water, and then this one's death by flame.
0: Yeah. So. so no mortal frame could twice endure such a trial. From midnight until noon the next day, Morvell's body burned upon the sacred pyre. As the sun reached its apex, a cold wind from the north guarded up his ashes and scattered them across the inner sea.
2: Oh, and thus ended the reign of Morvel the Impetuous. So then we get Belhathor the Sage. And this is the, the last, the penultimate Phoenix King before we get to Finubar, who's the one that is reigning in the sort of current timeline. But he's the tenth Phoenix King. He's called the Sage because he's very wise. He also reigns for the longest, I think. I'm not quite sure. He's one of the longest for sure.
0: He reigns um, for six hundred and
2: sixty years. That's a it's a decent decent go at it. <laughs> not quite as long as Hadris the scholar, but close. I mean we're talking hundreds of years here. It's insane. I was I was like that in the game whenever one of one of my elves gets killed. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, it's just another six hundred year old elf, no problem.
0: Yeah. And we should mention that during his reign is when the true rise of mankind actually takes place. When uh, yeah when, when we find the Empire Ambertonia starts to yeah. stop being like yeah. squabbling small peasant states.
2: So, this ties in with the founding of the Empire and, and Sigmar, reuniting the tribes. Um, and then, I guess, uh, Bretonians. I'm not sure what the history of the Bretonians is in terms of how they get civilized. Um, kill
1: the Breton, unites them against the orcs, and unites the different parts of the kingdom. It's a yeah. bit later than the, the Empire, guys, but it's similar.
2: It's during this era. What I always like about Bretonia is how so much of the elf, the old elf colonies, was in Bretonia. So you get a lot of the Bretonian castles being built on old elvish
1: remains. Yeah, Toralesi is uh, what town again? Andrew, I think, is what it's yeah. called. Yeah.
2: Um, and then you get you know the close relationship between the Wood Elves, obviously, developing yeah. as a result of that. So you get a lot of the legacy of Elvish colonization happening in Bretonia and Athel Loren.
1: Yeah, and uh, a similar uh, court, I guess. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, that's true, yeah. And a sense of sort of, I guess the Bretonians are always seen as a little bit more hoity-toity than the Imperials. Yeah. So you get that connection as well. <laughs> um, so, yeah, you've got Belhathel the Sage, and he is apparently the obvious choice as a successor to Morbid, um, Morvale the Impetuous.
0: Um, in, in the fact that he isn't a warrior king
2: yeah and that's something they're looking for but there's a bit of a conflict amongst the council at this point they're not quite sure who to make king because some of them do want a warrior king um, they can't quite decide but eventually Belhathor is decided on um, and he, so he's another wizard prince of Safri um, another eccentric just like Belcohadris there's an interesting naming convention getting brought in here clearly everyone from Safri has the word "Bell" before their name for some reason maybe it's being a mate, I don't know I, I like that kind of detail, it's interesting
0: yeah, He did have an ally or competitor that did travel the world, though, and that is Finnebar, the prince of 18. Yeah.
2: yeah, yeah. So Finnebar sort of being um, is sent off as a, as a to, to find out more about the old world and, and the human race living there. And he spends something like 60 years wandering, which is obviously the lifespan of most humans at that time, uh, just finding out as much as he can.
3: Yeah. It's um, the... also
2: at this point that Belhathor... Orders the uh, the enchantments and the magic to form the shifting isles that protect the eastern coast of Ulfwan from invasion. Yeah, because I think partially because uh, human explorers eventually land on Ulfwan and discover it, and he doesn't want that to really happen again. And he he says he doesn't want humans to set foot, so he demands you know sort of demands a, an edict and says this is this cannot happen again. We can't let people just come willy nilly. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so that's one of the edicts but as Finjabar is exploring the old world he starts to realise how much of an ally humans could be and so councils with with Bel-Hathor and says look we really could do with these guys as allies um, we're a dwindling race they they are clearly making advances quicker than we possibly could um, so we should have them as allies." so he reverses that edict on the council of Finjabar and allows them to access really just Lothan from foreign yeah.
0: and that's um, when the Lothan gets their foreign district which is yeah basically well we don't have elves to fill all of these houses we could just hire yeah. them out to merchants
2: yeah at exorbitant rates <laughs> yeah yeah um probably cheap for an elf actually <laughs> but yeah. anyway so again another golden age of trade happens where trade with the with the the, the humans is then struck up as a primary source and then um uh, finubar i don't think this isn't when, no, this doesn't, so this ties into how sort of Teclis eventually becomes the one who trained the uh, colleges of magic.
0: Yeah, but that but is not, under okay. Finnebar. Mm.
2: Uh, and Belhafo is another one who dies peacefully.
0: Yeah, he dies peacefully of old age and Finnebar was his chosen successor, which is quite logically because he was probably the most influential elf at that point. Yeah, yeah. so but Finnebar, that's, that's was question, chosen. Really. Finnebar was yeah. chosen by his uh, predecessor. He's the only one that's been chosen.
2: Yes, that's true. Sort of pre-appointed in a way, given, yeah. given the go-ahead.
0: Which is um, kind of like the Roman emperors when they adopted a general that was really influential, or a statesman that was really influential at the end of their life, so they could have a successor that wasn't of the blood, didn't feel spoiled by the, yeah. by the entitlement to power, but just, you're really good at this. You should yeah. take over.
2: And so we have where we are now. And I guess, I mean, you, it's probably a good point to sort of, because you can't really talk about the history of Finjabar because it, it's being written, I suppose. But um, he does do, I guess he does do some things, you know, trade with the old world is brought, brought into much closer relationship. Um, there are lots of invasions that happen, dark elf invasions, which is what forms the majority of the conflict in the game that we know and love. Um,
0: also uh, that is background to different characters in the book as well. Like the That's burning of bit bit.
2: Yeah. You also get the invasion of Grom the Paunch, the Goblin invasion, which is the subject of the new Total War game, isn't it?
0: Yeah, the new expansion. Mm-hmm. You can play as Grom, or you can play as Eltharion. Or if you do it as a proper Elven player, do, you play as uh, Imric of Calidor. The yeah. same <laughs> can you do that? I've yeah, not, I've, you, if you yeah. play as Imric, which is a really quite a challenging experience, uh, yeah. you, you start in. Well, somewhere somewhere north of Nagashisar, that kind of area. And there there are dragons there. So you can actually, if you have an army that led by Imrik, you can fight the dragon and their army, and then basically defeat the army, you gain the dragon as an ally. Right,
2: cool. I'm so jealous. I wish I had the time to play those games. (laughs) They sound like great fun. So that's it, really. What should we move on to next? That's the history of the Phoenix Kings, the Chronicles of the Phoenix Kings, bringing us right up to date.
1: Well, I guess we should talk about the elves in the game that we play. Yeah. Uh, So what can be said straight off the bat is that they are, they're like a glass cannon faction, right? Very elite, not durable at all, but can deal a lot of damage. Mm -hmm. You need to know what you're doing.
0: Yeah, Daphne 3 is not your friend. Yeah,
2: they're very weak, very... Very brittle. <laughs> so you have to be sure of when you're using them and you have to make sure you use them exactly the right place and the right time. It's a bit like using a, a rapier rather than a broadsword.
1: Yeah, and they have very yeah. specialized troops as well. A lot of special units that yeah. you have to know how to use. Yeah,
2: and they're all competing for your special slots as well, which is one of the things I always struggle with.
0: Yeah. You want to take- that's a good That's a good point, part of the 8th book where you can actually take Reversed as a core oh, really? choice.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, that's probably the only thing. That's well, good with that it, book because big, it removes all the It was a big deal in
2: six when suddenly silver helms became core choice, which seemed to make sense according to the fluff, you know, for ages, but what um, wasn't happening for some reason. Shall we start with the um, leaders or the core choices? What's
0: the- uh, can we start sh- start from the top and then round it off with some special characters to sort out out the story of the Finnebar era? Perfect. So, what? how do you feel about the prince?
2: Uh, how do I feel about prince?
0: Yeah. Oh, the, the prince? Oh, the prince. The choice, prince. not yeah. prince. Uh, no, the old artist former known yeah. as prince. I thought you were uh, asking
2: about Prince Charles.
0: About... <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, he's got, he's got big ears. To well, an architect,
2: I've always got an opinion about Prince Charles. But anyway, <laughs> um, <laughs> let's talk about the high-off princes. Um, they are probably the most... One of the most sort of, they've got very high weapon skill. So maybe we go through each of the different stat stat lines first. So movement five, that's across the board. All elves have that as their base movement. Weapon skill seven, ballistic skill six, a bit disappointing, but I'll take it. Strength four, toughness three, wounds three. So it's really starting to see how weak they are now. Toughness and wounds three. Uh, initiative eight, attacks four, and then leadership 10. And the base cost is 125 points.
0: You really do want to win the charge if you charge one in.
2: But they can be kitted out with some interesting um, equipment. So they they could they could be they've got some sort of vanilla magical equipment, which is sort of common magical equipment which they can be equipped with. Um, they uh, they could have dragon armor, which gives them it's just like heavy armor, but it gives them resistance to fire attacks. They get all the usual complement of weapons. So you've got lance, spear, great weapon, halberd, additional hand weapon, which is one of my favorite choices. Um, or they can be armed with a longbow. That's the only real range weapon choice they have, but um, very powerful one uh, in some builds.
0: Yeah, but you have to make sure you get your use yeah. of it if you make, take make it, because it is yeah, 50 make the most of it.
2: Uh, and then they've got the the full uh, complement of mounts. So they could, on an elven steed, barded or not, uh, great eagle, which is probably one of the most affordable options and uh, really, really, really good. Probably best on a hero rather than a prince, though. Um, then the griffon and a dragon, which is probably what you want to be mounting one on.
0: A griffin is something you mount it on if you don't have the yeah. points for a dragon. Griffin is the budget mount. Yeah. It has some some bonuses, but it's still two hundred points that you might spend on something yeah, else. Absolutely. Uh
2: but they do get a hundred points of magical allowance, don't they? So and you can use this to spend and we should probably talk about it a little bit because it's a key component of the, the high elf six army book so you've got vaul's forge where they list out all of the magic items but you also get the high elf honors um which can really start sort of customize who your heroes and princes are and your mates yeah yeah
0: can take one 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 is the only one that's yeah. mandatory and that's the pure of heart the
2: Pure of heart, zero points it's a mandatory one but i think that's the one that gives the enemy additional points they're slain
0: the the uh, this honor must be given to exactly one high elf character. It costs no points, and that is the character in any unity joins is immune to panic. If the pure of heart character is killed, the high elf player loses 100 victory points from its total at the end of the battle. If the scenario does not use victory points, then the demise of pure of heart character has no effect. So, you gain immune to panic in exchange for possibly losing 100 points.
2: Quite a risky one. I tend to put that on someone I know is going to be uh, holding the line and may not see combat. (laughs) Um, That's what I mean, being risk averse, potentially.
0: Yeah. But it is unnecessary to put it on a character you know, like have a 60, 70% risk of dying. Definitely don't put it it on
2: your combat prince or your combat hero or. It's it's probably quite a good choice for a mage in a
0: way. Um I've always of it. I put it on mages before. If you can keep them in the back and not get killed by scouts or anything. Yeah,
2: yeah. Or if they're or if they're ensconced in a spearman unit or somehow safe, otherwise safe. Quite a yeah. good choice. True. Then you've got Lion Guard, which is a weird one. This is this is an interesting one to bring out because it's one of the ones that has an impact on the rest of the army list. Because if a character has this honor, costs 45 points it says here the hero is lauded amongst all elven kind for his total devotion to the protection of all and his unswerving loyalty to the phoenix king and the character comes equipped with a lion cloak so he automatically gets the, the rules associated with a lion cloak uh, which is one of part of the sort of standard high elf armory the sort of vanilla specialist armory yeah. um uh, he leads and a stubborn uh... If you include a character with Lion Guard, then White Lions become a special choice instead of a rare choice. Oh. So it's quite a good way to free up a rare slot if you want to.
0: Yeah, but you do bring it into a highly contested special yeah. choice exactly. slot instead. Exactly.
2: Um, so, but if you want an extra Bolt Thrower or a brace of Eagles, um, it's quite a good way to pull pull give yourself an extra rare slot if you really want to include White Lions. Um
0: yeah. And uh, the the Lion Cloak is. Uh, pretty much the same thing as the sea dragon cloak yeah. in a dark elf army versus missile fire yeah. yeah so no no bonuses yeah. in close combat
2: um so that's an interesting one quite expensive as an as honors go 45 points is you know starts to sort of clog up the points allowance it uses up almost the entire points allowance of a, of a hero uh, and all the of
0: the yeah but it, it do it do give you the possibility to have a stubborn unit of the uh, call the White Lions, and a stubborn unit of whatever else you use that. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. that's true.
2: So if you're playing the sort of stay put game, and you're really just trying to be an implacable rock force that they just have to clash against time and again, it's a good one to go with. Yeah. So then there's Lawmaster, which is a really fun one. It's 40 points. Do you want to uh, read this one out, Chris?
0: Sated by his training in the martial arts, the character has now embarked upon the path of the mage. And that is, the character is a level 1 wizard. Note that he may not cast spells if he's wearing armor. Remember that barding for his steed will not affect his spell casting.
2: So basically, yep. you can turn a fighty hero into a magicy hero. It's quite useful. Yeah, it's pretty nice. we have
0: there. If nothing else, you get bonus dice.
2: Yeah. Yep, the spell dice power you want to get off you can you can try and get it this way um it doesn't really stack that well with other magic items because generally if you've got a fighty character and you want to make them into a mage and you don't really want to be spending points on dispel scrolls for that character or something like that you generally want to be giving them a bit more protection probably like a a ward save or some armor or a decent weapon um so it's a bit of a weird one but it's fun
0: it could potentially be useful if you your enemy targets your character with a spell that destroys their armor, mm. but that's a really, each. really low that's that yeah. that rarely yeah. happens,
2: and in fact, the people doing that the most are the high elves, so
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh,
2: so yeah, the next one is Swordmaster, and this is one that we should point out had an addendum in different versions of the book.
0: Uh, yeah, I have the FAQ one glued into my book the old fashioned yeah, cool.
2: way. I think I've just got the reprint here, so. I can't remember what the old... Oh, I think the addendum is really just telling you that it can only be a character on foot. That's it. That's all it really does. Yeah. I think people were starting to I combo it that's... with mounted characters or characters on dragons, and it was a bit bit much.
0: Yeah. Character on a dragon that has killing no yeah. special rule. That's uh... <laughs> So this yeah. is
2: um, Swordmaster, 40 points, character on foot only. Trained by the adepts of the Tower of Hoeth, the lethal skills of this warrior are justly fabled. The character is equipped with a great, great weapon and may not take a magic weapon. So thats I think that might also have been an addendum. I'm not sure. Instead of striking last in any turn, he does not charge. The character will strike in initiative order, as explained on page 68 of the Warhammer Rules. The character also gains the Killing Blow special rule. I think this has probably got to be one of the best ones yeah. you could give a, a hero, to be honest.
0: Yeah. It frees up all the points you want to put into weapon yeah. for armor yeah. and talismans and stuff like that.
2: To be honest, they could have easily made this a weapon that, that gave you the killing rule, and it would have yeah. achieved the same effect potentially. But yeah,
0: and that's the executioner's axe from the yeah. Dark Elf book. I think yeah. sixty points or something like that. Sixty
2: points, but anyone can carry yeah.
0: it. I think it's that. That's, yeah, and you're not. Uh, yeah, you're not limited to being on foot right. or. Not the and you so have a magic weapon instead of that. Whack someone a on a black dragon
2: one. with the executioner's axe and they become an absolute beast.
0: <laughs> or better combos. <laughs> they <right.
2: I> <laughs> <they right>. <laughs> <laughs> so the next one, so the, those, those, for the first sort of four, I guess, are really designed for combat or, or heroes, um, hero-type characters. And the next two are really just optimized for mage characters. So we've got Seer, which is probably my favorite one.
0: The lores of magic hold no surprises for this mage. Countless hours of painstakingly study mean that no spell of worth has escaped his keen eye. Also, he has to pay 30 points for it.
2: Very reasonable, just, though, given what it
0: does. Yeah. Mage only may choose his spells instead of rolling for them, which is Very really exotic. powerful.
2: Brilliant one. Yeah.
0: No more having to hope to roll for the good spells and just get, getting similar spells. You can just pick and choose your arsenal.
1: Yeah, it seems like a no-brainer if you're getting a, a wizard lord. Yeah,
2: it's almost an auto included for an archmage.
0: It is also quite evil to have this one if you get the certain campaign rules that we've been running, and you all, all of a sudden have the book, the book that gives you irresistible force on every. But, um yeah that was what was my art I had in our campaign games is that how yeah, okay. yeah yeah it was campaign so you, stuff you know yeah it is because then you have a, like a 150 point limit i think
2: so then the next one is channeler which is is probably the weakest one to be honest um 10 points so it doesn't eat you up too much of your point allowance but uh I don't know. I think it's a bit. It's a little bit weak. Um, so the mage acts as a conduit through which raw power flows. Mage only may cast with a maximum of plus one more power dice than normal. For example, level three mage may use up to five power dice in an attempt to cast a spell instead of the usual four. So this sort of ties to to the way that um, I think you know. Obviously, elvish mage, mages and mage casting heroes get all sorts of benefits because of the fact that they are high mages and they're supposed to be the best mages in the whole of the warhammer world um so they get they get um an automatic free spell which all of them know called drain magic but they also get plus one to dispel from any you know against any spell that's cast so that means that they're just better at sort of um dispelling other mages spells um and they get uh, I think that's it, really. I, I always used to think they get an extra power dice or something, but that's something else entirely.
0: isn't um, yeah, that dark, dark elves. If they, if they use dark, if they use dark magic, mm-hmm. I think, like uh, the bonus, the uh, extra bonus for with rain magic is if you use high magic.
2: I guess channel is the way that they can do that. They do, they will get an extra power dice from having that. But I always find it's a bit complicated because if you put it on a low-level mage, then they don't really get a huge amount of power dice anyway. And really, as rules is written, it, all it really means is they can roll an extra power dice. It doesn't mean they get an extra one. So they're not getting an extra one to the pool. They can just roll one more than they usually would be allowed to. Yeah. So I don't think it's that great. No. But that's all what right. we are.
0: Um,
2: and in terms of equipping a prince, you've got such an amazing selection of magic items, which will maybe we'll discuss later once we've gone through everything.
0: It's really yeah. easy to get bogged into. Well,
2: <laughs> but trust me, there's some of the best in there. And you can, one of the things, that, just to give a sort of an overview, one of the things that this book really allows for is you can really turn... High elf heroes and princes into real tin cans. Essentially, they they can be really hard to kill. Um, they've got some pretty powerful weapons and pretty powerful magic items and talismans and enchanted items and things. Um, but I've noticed when you're when you're kitting out a combat prince or a combat hero, you can really make them quite tough to kill. Ward saves up, you know, ward saves. Yeah, um, a few really really good ward saves and lots of ways that you can make give yourself a, a one up.
0: And uh, all of a sudden, you have your Characters cost about a half of your army. Yes,
2: <laughs> very quickly, happens, Especially when you're putting them on a dragon.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah, Dragon is 320 points, yeah. so on top. Of, then, should we move on to yeah. the next
2: one, the Archmage?
0: Yes. So the the stats are a bit different in because it's not a fighting character. It's only have a weapon skill and ballistics skill of four, strength three, and then toughness and wounds, three. Initiative five, attacks one, leadership nine. There's one less leaderships. For 220 points.
2: Pretty pricey, but it is an Archmage.
0: Yeah, and then we have also uh, an Archmage is a level three wizard. He may choose either high magic or any of the eight lords described in the Warhammer rulebook. Yeah, so they just get, which is they also just get cool.
2: access to everything, don't they? Apart from dark magic and wild yeah. magic, uh, and necromantic magic.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, but all of the major that everyone can use just because if you look at the Wood Elf book, they are very limited in what which uh, lores they can take, and the same with the Dark Elf book.
1: Yeah, I think the they only... don't have the Tower of Hoth to study in for hundreds of years.
2: Yeah, that's it. address is legacy.
0: <laughs> and of course, you can upgrade to level 4 wizard for 35 points, or an elven steed that can have barding, or a great that's eagle.
2: That's my favorite choice, and, to be honest, uh, only because I just like the idea. <laughs> Of an archmage mage bombing around on an eagle, zapping people.
0: Yeah, and uh, the combination of honors and our magic items for up to hundred points. Yes, nice. Which is when you're, yeah, a level four mage on a eagle. You're starting to run out of. Yep. Space in your army to actually (laughs) (laughs) give you magic items. This
2: is this, you know, these kind of, you know, dream builds, uh, what you reserve for your 6,000 point uh, crazy game that never happened. (laughs) Yeah. The one that you think will happen one day. And maybe it will. (laughs) Yeah. So then we move down to the heroes, the much more reasonably priced heroes. I think they probably are one of, they are reasonably priced for what they are. I think they're probably quite efficiently priced. So you've got the commander uh, and this one can also be your battle standard bearer. So for an extra 25 points, they can be the BSB, um, which means they can be equipped with a magical banner. But when they do, they lose the ability to wield any other magical items. And I think they they cannot be mounted on anything. So you can't mount them on the great eagle; they would otherwise be allowed.
0: You can mount it on a horse, but not the eagle. eagle. And this is where we should mention the rule: intrigue at court, which I skimmed over, but. the general of the High Elf army is determined randomly. Line up the characters and roll a dice. The mm-hmm. number is the character nominate of general. If, if you roll over the number of characters in the army, then the general is selected as normal instead. So. It's kind of random, so, but
2: if you've only got one hero, then know who your general is going to be. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah it, can, it can be a bit annoying, I think, and, when that happens. But who your general is but, isn't a major deal, but, in my opinion.
0: No, and if you're playing a lower points yeah. number points value game anyway, you probably have one or maybe two no. characters, and mm-hmm. uh, you know. because
2: of the cost, of your character, you I tend to not have a huge amount of heroes in your army anyway.
1: Yeah, yeah, I heard uh, some people really like this rule, some people don't like it that much. Uh, mm-hmm. I think it's, it brings a lot of character to the elves. It really gives you the sense of yeah, their flavorful. Pickering.
0: Yeah, I like it. I think, I think the people that don't like this rule is the same people that want uh, the war rule out of the Orc and Goblin. Book. <laughs> yeah. Like 9 8th yeah, players. Yeah,
2: let's take out all of the weaknesses from an otherwise perfect thing.
0: Yeah, and uh, the reason I mentioned the, the uh, intricate Court rule now is because this rule is the only way the battle standard bearer can become Uh, a general in the army. Mm -hmm.
2: So yeah, as a commander, you, you can buy him for 70 points or her for 70 points. Um, They can be the battle standard bearer for an extra 25 points. The stat line's pretty decent. Um, I like that there's an equality between weapon skill and ballistic skill, unlike the Prince. So movement 5, weapon skill and ballistic skill 6. Strength 4, toughness 3, only 2 wounds. So really fragile. Uh, Initiative 7, attacks 3, which is nice. And leadership 9, which is pretty decent as well. They get 50 points of magic items. Uh, they get they can be equipped with all the same things that Prince can be equipped for, but for about two thirds of the price. Um, and they can be mounted on a great eagle or an elven steed. My favorite is obviously great eagle. It's a great combo for a hero or a commander. Fly them yeah. around, smash them into the side mm-hmm. of a unit. Uh, they can take things on on their own, commanders generally. Uh, they could take a unit on, a, a weakish unit on its on their own. So it's a good way to be able to sort of just wipe up stragglers or um, with a combined attack with other units which is really the only way that L should ever be played then it, he's a great addition to any tactic you want to employ
0: yeah I've used one greatly to enhance a spear wall basically mm-hmm. just having standing there like an immovable yeah. object because he's so much more durable than the rest of the yeah. elves in the unit yeah but you
2: could you can um, for 50 points as well you can make him pretty unkillable 50 points
0: yeah you can give him uh, what do we call the, the bracers of We'll give you the, yeah, the of, they are pretty mm-hmm. nifty. If you just want him to not move, and if you want him, you can, the entire unit, if you want to risk it, the entire unit can be immune to panic yeah. as well.
2: So commanders are a great choice for a hero. Um, I've, I've seen people build armies where they don't include any princes at all, and they just have
0: loads of commanders. Or... A prince is only really needed if you want yeah, a dragon. I think you're right. The difference in uh, Combat Pro is not that great between them. It's just maybe the plus one leadership, but then you can get that leadership from other things like uh, the Tome yep. of. Oh, blanking on everything today, but you know what um, I mean, right?
2: Um, we maybe we'll mention it yep. later if we if we get a chance. But as you, it's usually a bit of a vortex. All of the um, magic item sections of books.
0: Yeah. So the mage, but this, uh, yeah the mage. Which is not that uh, dissimilar from the Arc Mage stats at all. Just have a, one Stat few wounds.
2: basically the same. Yeah.
0: Ninety-five points, and uh, yeah, even the upgrade costs are the yeah. same for the level two. From but 24. no
2: great eagle to ride.
0: No, sadly, nor any chariots or anything that you can do in other editions.
2: Yeah, you can you can mount characters on chariots. Um, but it ends up taking up an extra special unit choice, just like I think in a lot of the other books. Yeah. Um, uh, the dragon obviously takes up another hero slot as well. So that's yeah. another thing to bear in mind if you want that prince with the dragon.
1: It seems like with the elf magic users, uh, they're really great value as they are. But then you can buff them a lot to really give them an edge.
2: Yeah, then they become really spectacular. The, you know, the level of the Archmage with the Book of hands um, being the perfect example on an eagle I mean that is one of the best most powerful if you're going to go for a Lord choice in a high off army it's
0: yeah. a good one yeah I have, have one in my campaign army with that book it's uh, glorious when you just roll up yeah I'm going to no matter what spell offensive or defensive spell you use you just so much better when it's uh, cause with irresistible yeah. force.
2: And when you're on the back of an eagle, you can draw a line of sight almost anywhere. You just put it where you want him. Yeah. Eagle gives him a bit of protection from armor save. If you put him close enough to other units or behind other units, then he won't be the closest target, so it'll be hard for him to be charged or targeted by missiles. Yeah.
0: yeah. We should probably mention that that's a thing you need to get really good at when playing Hails, positioning. Yeah.
2: Positioning is everything. Deployment is everything. Elf army, you need to get that right, and this is why it rewards really experienced generals uh, or generals who can keep their head,
0: which is not me, by the way. Um, uh, and, yeah. But that's just, that's just a that's just a trait of the elven yeah. race. You just feel that the red comes on, and you get a tinge of cane yeah, in you,
2: the rage. There's less about that. I just like getting stuck in. I think I probably shouldn't have ever really chosen, that, but I, I love the book. I love the book. <laughs> <laughs> the fluff is fantastic, and and you know I probably should have chosen something a bit more you know, yeah. like probably Orcs and Goblins, maybe I don't know. But that's that's my um um uh, uh,
0: corn, uh, a Yeah, corn or Chaos,
2: or Chaos is probably right up my street.
0: <laughs> but that's before uh, the mage can take high magic or any one of the eight lords described in the Warhammer yeah. book, which makes it a really versatile. if you take more then one mage you can uh, kit get them out for different yeah so
2: one of my great favorite combos for Oops. a mage is mage give him an extra level Give him the Seer ability, uh, and then probably give him the Silver Wand as well. So then he becomes a—he he can now cast. He's got three spells, and he can choose three spells that he gets to use. And he hasn't cost a huge amount. Still pretty expensive compared to other mages or magic users out there, but it's quite a good combo. And then he's got still got another ten points spare for a Talisman of Protection or something like that, which, which he needs. Yeah. So that's that's quite a solid build for a for a mage, I think. So that's the heroes and
0: the lords. Yep. Let's move on to Four the core units. units.
2: So this is where it gets really fun, because the Silver Helms are finally where they should be. Yeah, the definitely. Um, there's a couple of broad rules that we should probably talk about, isn't there, um, that, that apply to all Elf units, or all core units in particular. Or is it just Silver no, So it's just silver Helms and Spearmen, isn't it? That's, that's the first among equals rule.
0: Yeah, and that is, one unit of either Spearmen or Silver Helms may be given a magic standard worth up to 25 points. if you want want to spend it on it. So I'm not sure how
2: common that is in other books in terms of core units getting access to magic banners, but it seems like it's a big deal here.
0: Yeah, and it's quite nice if you want to give the banner of Illyrian where you can uh, move through difficult terrain without taking a penalty, which is great. Yeah, just having an outflanking silver unit.
2: Or you can charge through forests if you want to.
0: Yeah. Or if you want to make your uh, spearmen really, really durable, or of better offence, give them some magic protection. Yeah. Yep. But those banners, the, the cheap banners are usually, Yeah, you can move to difficult yeah, I think
2: there's one that allows the unit to be immune to fear or cause fear or something. Lion banner, cause fear, I think, from memory.
0: That's- a Lion standard is immune to fear that's and terror. That's terrible. quite good if
2: you want to put it on a block of spearmen.
0: Yeah, and uh, banner of Illyrian, as we mentioned, is this unit Treats difficult ground as open ground for purposes of movement. So I think the
2: other two that these two, brilliant. this first equals rule, would give them access to, really.
0: Yeah. Next next banner up is uh, 40 points, and it's the banner of arcane protection, which gives you magic resistance That's pretty
2: good, isn't it? I've used that one before.
0: Yeah. And in addition, any undead or demon model touching the unit, carrying the banner with suffer oh, 1, wound oh, yeah. save as normal at the start of the
2: Masters, it's super fluffy, yeah. you know, they become demon-killing machines. Uh, it's brilliant.
0: Yeah, It's uh, something I will take next time <sighs> I play Krell if he's using his okay. uh, undead.
1: Oh, are you playing undead? I took this totally by accident. <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, oh what do you mean? Just a, bit of, just a bit of magic resistance and you get an automatic an automatic probably <laughs> Yeah, yeah, but uh, the archers and uh, the spearmen are pretty much the
2: that same. Wise, yeah, they are. The, well, just yeah. Uh, the only difference is in their champion choice, which obviously just swaps attack. The sort of spearmen they yeah. get two attacks for the champion, and then the archer champion gets an additional pip of ballistic skill, making it skill five, which is pretty yeah. pretty. Good, really. This is still five. Um, they're they're going to be hitting on, well, three plus most of the time, um, long range for for the champion, and then the archers will be on four plus. Yeah. 50-50, not bad.
0: Long range. Archers archers are 12 points, though, yeah. which makes them quite expensive. They are quite expensive,
2: but I always think they're a good core slot filling up option. Spearmen are better, potentially, depending on the build you're going for. The ultimate core slot has got to be Silver Helms, though. I mean, I think it's a contest.
0: Yeah. As we, as we mentioned with basically every choice here is it depends on the build of your army and the theme of your the army. What are you doing? Yeah,
1: Silver Helms with the banner that allows you to move through terrain. It's just a, it's such a solid core choice.
2: Brilliant core choice. Yeah. And if you're going MSU as well, you can have like three different small units of Silver Helms. Keep your opponent guessing. Um, maybe you've got the banner on one of them. Yeah. It doesn't really matter. Maybe you've got a hero in another. And, you know, so it's still, it's got two problems to deal with.
0: Yeah. Yep. Yeah. But the spearmen are eleven points, and they come with hand weapon, spear, light armor, and shield. And the archers come with hand weapon and longbow, and can take a light armor yeah, they from one. Can take
2: point light to armor, move. which I think probably any everyone doesn't bother with, but I can't think why he would. To be honest, it's always- if you have those
0: uh, armored. Models, yeah, if you're playing playing, have, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's probably the only reason I would take them because it doesn't matter if yeah, they get charged or yeah. dead. I,
2: I at the moment they're charged or about to be charged, I just forget about them <laughs> <laughs>
0: because they are gone, yeah. probably all, yeah, <laughs> should probably also mention that spear everyone with a spear in the high elf book fights in three ranks.
2: So that's a fantastic rule. If they're charged, they fight in three ranks. Most other units with spears in other armies will fight in two ranks if they're charged. Um, now, I, yeah don't think that means that they fight in two ranks when they charge themselves, which used to be the way the rule was written in fifth edition.
0: In sixth, in sixth edition, it's just a flat fight in three ranks with spears. So whether they charge or not?
2: Ah, okay. Yeah. So I always thought it was when they were charged. but um,
0: No, it's, uh, in the sixth edition, it's just fighting in three ranks with spears, that's how it's written. written. Used, always. Yeah. Which is why it makes sense to always have at yeah. least three ranks yeah. in a unit that's of a given. spears. Really.
2: Um, I remember with with archers, it was always very impressive in 5th edition when high elf archers suddenly got the ability to shoot in two ranks and no other force could do that. Uh, but then in 6th edition, the general rules got introduced that any archer unit could do that if they were mounted on a hill, which is what, what high elf archers get, essentially. Uh,
1: I I think they only yeah. fight in one rank, though, if they charge, because regular spears in the rulebook now also says fight in two ranks. But I just, it's only when they get charged or when they're stationary. But It doesn't doesn't say that here.
2: Uh, yeah, that's the reason I thought. But but I don't know. We, we could have a little... I haven't got the book here myself. But I always thought it makes sense because ultimately that's what
0: Spearmen are designed for, is to be... Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, Yeah. I have the book right in front of me. And it just says, fight in three ranks with Spears. Yeah. That's all the book yeah, says.
1: And In the core rulebook, just it, it says, fight in two ranks. But I know that's written somewhere else. Yeah. But trying to find something in this rulebook, it's... Yeah. Uh, you check yeah. the summary at the back. Sometimes it's like that's the that's
0: tower of so, yeah. So we we leave you to it, and maybe you have found yeah, it yeah. before we. we can record. Find it. Yeah. Then we go, since we mentioned Silverhams, we're going to co- come to those in a second. We have the. to one choice of load and Seaguard as well in this book, which is 15 points, which is 15 points to money.
2: Yep, they're very expensive. Um, They're they're one of my favourite units, just because I love the idea of the flexibility, but as with all units with flexibility in six, you pay for it, so... The fact they can act as your archers yep. and your spearmen at the same time they can stand and shoot that's quite fun they can they know they're pretty tough they can do the fight in three ranks thing but they only have a normal bow so yep. their range is reduced on an archer so they're actually not as good as archers they're not really a hybrid of archers and spearmen
0: and they're 15 yeah. points so per exciting. model which is the, uh, you the really pressing and points
2: and they go up to 16 points per model
0: yep. yeah yeah that's the sticking point. They don't come with shields. If they came with shields,
2: they might be a contender, but they don't.
0: On the counterpoint, though, if you play the Sea Guard list from the Storm of Chaos book, then, and then, they, the then they
2: start to shine, and I think they get reduced. They get yeah. their cap is increased as well, so you can have several units of them, even not you one.
0: Yeah, you can. You you have to basically, and the fact is that you get that. Uh, like the thing, what they call? called, I think it's an honor room that the uh, Sea Lord has that gives you the pre game bombardment yeah. when they everything with the bow can shoot.
2: Yeah. It's crazy. That's a crazy
3: list. <laughs> yeah. Uh,
0: yeah. But that's what, there's a reason some of this Storm of Chaos armies aren't really used as much in mm. organized settings. A
2: bit OP. Yeah.
0: They can also take magic items and magic banners yeah. in the Sea list.
2: So obviously all three of these core okay. units, these infantry units, they all get the normal upgrades for musicians, standard bearers, and champions. A bit more pricey for the Loth and Guard. There's, there's an extra points for each of those. Yeah. But then we get to the best one, Silver Helms.
0: Yes. They're 19 points, points. which might sound a bit mm. steep Just as a, as a standard, but they're yeah. good enough for it.
1: Well, as a Kissel player, I would say that's really cheap, but they come <laughs> without a lot of equipment. <laughs> That's, that's true. Right, that's
0: right. So that that at that,
2: that cost they they're, they're going to be base uh, armor save of 5 up I think.
1: So they come common...
0: Yeah, they lack both the
2: shields All they're and they're armor armor so that's just 5 up. But, yeah, but... You give them shields for 2 points brings us up brings them up to 21 points a model and that will give them a 4 up. You could give them heavy heavy armor for another 2 points so they then go up to 23 points a model and that would give them their best armor save possible which is 2 up I think.
1: Can they have boarding?
0: A they come with a, they have a border.
2: Oh, sorry, so oh. so their base save is 4-up, yeah. yeah. For 19 points, you get a 4-up save. You get uh, fast cavalry. Well, they're not fast cavalry, but you get fast-moving cavalry unit.
0: Yeah, I got a 90-inch inch move. Uh,
2: minimum unit size of 5, which is totally doable. As you know, in my army, I've got a unit of
0: 23. <laughs> <laughs> it all depends yeah, on.
2: Which I build. will split up in different ways. But yeah,
0: um, yeah they're great. Yeah. And you can keep them out for either being a flanking unit, or if you build them large enough and armoured them heavily enough, you can use them as the main charger if you have all the flanking units. And they're
2: units. actually the cheapest way to fill up your core slots. So for five at 19 points, it's cheaper than the minimum ten spearmen or ten archers, and way cheaper than the minimum ten Loth and sea guard. Yeah, definitely. So that's why they're, they're probably the best core choice in my opinion. They're most flexible. You can you pay for what you want them to be, so you pay less, and they're just a really fast, lightweight, disposable to a certain extent, hard-hitting cavalry force. Um, or you beef them up a little bit more with more armor, and then they become a proper sort of stalwart core cavalry choice.
0: Yep. Yeah, and if you want to boost them even more, you put the mountain on motorcycles. <laughs> yeah, they're uh, apparently so. There's there's uh, there's a really Long, a long piece of straight road yeah. right outside, which is uh, why people tend to uh, speed a bit and just uh, have a bit of fun. So uh, I'm not going to cut this out, so it's just <laughs> a bit of fun. A little bit of okay. trivia for where I live.
2: So we've done core. Should we move on to special? Yeah.
0: And then we have the Illyrian Reavers. That costs 18 points, as base.
2: Yeah, so one less point than a Silver Helm.
0: And you've got a unit size of five, a hand weapon, light armor, and spear, and an elven yeah, steed.
2: they're an interesting choice, because there are sort of two or three ways you can use them, really. You can either use them as a... I mean, maybe maybe Nicholas can tell us about this, because they essentially are, you know, the equivalent of all the different Kislev. <laughs> <laughs>
3: yeah.
1: yeah, well, you can use them as a... I used to arm with spears as a flank charging unit, or you can use them as a... Uh, Arranged units to harass from afar, or you can use them as a hybrid. That's what I would say.
2: The hybrid is the most expensive choice. I can't remember how much it is now. Something like 24 a unit, maybe more.
1: Yeah. yeah. You got 18
0: plus six points per model for.
1: I, I, I think that, that that's uh, something that will look great on paper, and you would think of all kinds of crazy good ways of using this, and then after one game, you would realize that this doesn't work, and then you would go for one or two ways yeah
0: it depends on what you're using them for as we've said with everything you can use if you use them as a flanking unit you probably don't need to have give them bows if you use them as a war machine hunter you could just use them as a hybrid or just bows.
1: yeah uh...
2: favorite choice is keep them cheap just leave them with the light armor and spear and good to go as they are to be honest and yep. that's probably the most effective use of them. Yep. Flanking, yeah. flanking mm-hmm. rank negating, light like cavalry.
1: Yeah, it depends on uh, what the rest of your yeah. army is, I guess. Uh, and I noticed with uh, my horse archers uh, is that they're capable of uh, engaging units even though they don't have any spears. If you use to have bows and harass the enemy until you can charge something in the flank, will probably be good as well. You don't really need spears to be able to take out some unit that's not meant to fight anyway.
0: That's true. True, yeah. True. And, uh, well, they are fast cav, which we didn't mention. Yeah, and I kind of,
2: you know, and all, when I think of an Illyrian Reaver, I think of a bow, bow-armed bow sort of step cavalry. Yeah. Um, And it's nice to sort of, you know, because the, the, they had so many different models back in six as well got a unit of 12 of these guys armed with just bows and they look fantastic. They're sort of shooting in all different directions and they've got that kind of fast-moving cavalry thing. And I remember one of the rules in 5th was that they could fire and flee, which they can't do now, but it just felt like the right use of a sort of harrying, annoying little light cavalry unit. It's exactly how you want to use them. Go with the enemy.
0: Yeah. And as we said, most of the miniatures are really good looking as well from all yeah, generations. Yeah. Of the... So, anyway. I interestingly... Think I think I have like 20 lot of blood ones. I oh, yeah, those them. those
2: ones are beautiful as well. It's just a shame that they're made of plastic.
1: <laughs> no heft.
2: No heft at all.
0: If you just put, uh, like, uh, fishing weights or something yeah, in
2: the Yeah, people can tell me that. Or inside the same. Central is wrong.
0: <laughs> but if it, the, the, horse, the horse is hollow, you <laughs> could just fill it Milliput. with the leather. Yeah, people have told me that as well. <laughs> <laughs> the next one is the slightly worse version of the Dragon Princess of Calidor. They're special units now.
2: They were always rare units in previous editions, so that was yeah. also a nice surprise in 6K.
0: Yeah, and you have 0 to 1 limit on this one, and they are 26 points a mm, model. That seems
2: like a lot, doesn't it? But they are superb.
0: Yeah, for 26 models, uh, points per model, you do get hand weapon, lance, dragon armor, and shield, and... And Elven Steed with Ithilmar yeah, Barding. So they
2: basically got all the kit they need straight away. They're already on their two up save. Um their stat line is what you're getting them for though, really, because the Drake Master and the Dragon Prince, Drake Master being the champion, um they
1: Is it is it a one plus save?
2: Is it one up? isn't uh, the
1: the drag Ithilmar or the was it Dragon Armour? Isn't it four up?
0: Dragon is heavy armor essentially. All right. Yeah. yeah. And then you get the the Ithilmar barding mentioned is uh, plus one to the model's armor save like ordinary boarding. however there's no reduction in the movement yeah, rate of the model it's really nice so they retain their movement of nine yeah.
2: so that's great um, and they've got weapon skill five which is really good there's only one other unit in the list that has a better weapon skill than that strength and toughness three though uh wounds one uh, initiative six attacks one leadership nine so they're a they're a special unit or a, or a sort of rank and file unit with a leadership of nine, which is incredible.
1: Uh, standard, standard yeah. for dwarves. I
3: know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: but yeah, these are some of the best cavalry in the game, I'd say they're great. And 26 points is not that bad, no, really. No. You know, my medium cavalry is 24 points, so uh. Yeah, they're awesome. And uh, Moomin 9, uh, even with Barding, so uh, a yeah. charge range of 18. Uh, but yeah, the only problem is that they're strength 3, so strength yeah. 5 on the charge with lances.
2: Not great, Right. great, but yeah. I'll take it because it's probably one of the hardest hits that an elf is going to give. Yeah.
0: And the fact that you can upgrade the standard bearer if you have one to a magic standard worth yeah, up to fifty. Points. So this combos
2: well with some of the higher cost magic standards in the in the list. And yeah. the Great Master can have a magic yeah. item. So you can give him something killy to help you with that.
0: Yeah, you can twenty five points of yeah. magic item. Yeah.
2: You can give him a magic weapon, make him extra killy, give him some protection or something that protects him and the unit to make them make them a bit more durable. But really the the, the main thing is to give them the probably, you know, one of the best banners you can give them, to be honest. Um, I'm just looking it up now. Uh, It's always one that I go to. So it's either the standard of balance, the banner of sorcery, or the banner of arcane protection.
0: Yeah. It depends on if you want to give them an ability to give you extra power dice or if you want to be completely immune to psychology, including the one you target. That one's pretty
2: good, especially when Mm -hmm. you're going to charge something with frenzy, like witch elves or savage Um, That's great because you negate their frenzy completely. They lose their whole advantage. Um, and then, of course, they can get the banner of arcane protection, which we already talked about, which will demon killing dragon yeah. knights, which is fun.
0: Yeah. And the final line of that banner that we didn't read out before is: note that this does not count as a close combat attack. Mm. It's just an attack. You just get a wound. It's not a, that you can say, but it's not an attack, close combat attack. I see.
2: But that also prob- prob- does that mean it contributes to the uh, combat resolution?
0: I
1: guess it doesn't.
0: I, I can't say. Yeah. Interesting. I might have been, I'm not sure, but it might be in one of the Errata FAQs. So, sword masters of Hoeth, 13 points of model and an 0 to 1 limit. And uh, these have a lovely weapon skill of 6, and uh, that's pretty much what you're getting them for. Uh, It's a 10 plus unit and you get a 200 sword, which is a great weapon, a hand weapon and heavy armor. And uh, same thing as with the Dragon Princess, you can upgrade the Standard Bearer to Magic Standard for 50 points, and the Blade Lord at 25 points was Magic items. And these you can actually possibly combo with some other lovely Magic items, but they also have a rule that's called Sword Masters.
1: Is that that they hit uh, at an initiative with their Grey weapons?
0: Yeah. Uh, swordmaster may use a great weapon as deftly as a normal sword. Instead of striking last in any turn they don't charge, they strike in initiative order, as explained on page 68 of yeah, the Warhammer great. rules. A great, a great weapon used by swordmaster will still strike blows with plus two strength. So they are quite yeah.
1: punchy. It seems like a great unit to put the uh, the guy that makes the unit stubborn in.
0: Yeah, definitely. You have to remember that they are st- still only heavy armor yeah. walking in front. Yeah,
1: yeah. I guess uh, in 6th edition, though, you don't have that many attacks coming in at a maximum anyway. So you would probably have maybe 5 or 6 attacks coming in. Just hope that not enough of them die at a turn, but they will strike first in any subsequent turn anyway. Because they're initiative 5 or 6. Yeah, initiative 5. They're probably hit before anyone else anyway. And they'll hit like any standard troop and even any elite troop on a 3-up. This uh, weapon skill six is really good.
0: Yeah, and if you use them in a uh, like an infantry line, you could give them give the leader possibly a blessed tome for twenty five points. And uh, the tales in this book gives heart to all hiles that hear them. Tales of ancient valor and glory, stories of nobility and self sacrifice. It is, the character with the tome recites the stirring words of heroes of old as battle is joined. All high elf units within six inches of the bearer get plus one leadership, up to a maximum of ten. Yeah. So if you use a unit of these in your infantry spear line, you can potentially boost unit next yeah. to it as well. So you don't really have to have your general close by to get... Bonus
1: to yeah, they're just uh, a great, great close combat unit and definitely something that you want to shoot out instead of uh, getting stuck into.
2: Yeah, um, I'm mm-hmm. sad I missed them. Swordmasters are my favorite.
0: Just <laughs> <laughs> to mention that you could take like the Blessed Tome for the Blade, the blade Lord yes, to give yeah. them... Uh, and, and
2: the way that has a sort
0: of area of, a, of effect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Like six inches from. Yeah, it's a great choice, a great Lord. So if you, yeah, at least if you're using them to anchor an infantry line with without a general, without a lord in it. Yeah, I'd prince. say. I
2: mean, most of the um, most of the the sort of elite infantry for high elves have a have the ability to give their champion a twenty five point item, and that that item is almost an auto include for almost any of them. To be honest, it's probably quite good with Phoenix card as well.
0: Yeah, definitely and uh, it's good with the swordmasters given that they're only leadership yeah, and they're
2: so affordable okay. these guys you probably already mentioned it but it, it's it's yeah. it's almost laughable they probably should have had a couple more points
0: yeah the bonus rule with the uh, the initiative on charge if they uh, and uh, that's the best part with with uh, the war of the beard list when you can have more yeah, than exactly. one unit
2: for a while, I had a stupendous number of these models. Um, <laughs> I've now managed to get it down to 30, um, but I just love them so much, I think I had something like three units of 30. Or <laughs> um, I was obsessed with getting unit formations that could be in ranks of seven, so I think I probably had two units of 21 and then another unit of 30, uh, <laughs> but I don't have any. I, mean, I know you've nice. already got loads, Chris. You've got 50 or something. Yeah,
0: that's you? because I bought, uh, I managed to score a lot of... Uh, the metal ones, and then I bought a lot of just random Island of Blood yeah, those are, uh, minis and yeah, a lot of them in them. And then I traded with Jimmy for uh, another set of Island of Blood minis. You, so just, this you started just the market up.
2: on Swordmasters in
0: Europe. <laughs> right. yeah. And that's why all of a sudden, because when we started this podcast, we used to uh, cost things in amounts of battalions of <laughs> high <elves. laughs> because they were so cheap there was like a battalion yeah. was like a third of the value it was actually on the market.
2: Well swordmaster the old metal swordmasters these days you know probably about 2 quid one one quid each maybe there's so many of them out there on the market but they're such great models I don't see there's any any excuse to not own some if you're even if you're not a health player.
0: To be fair, they work quite good with, with if you mix the plastic ones yeah, and the metal ones it, as well, because they're oh, well, similar they've enough.
2: Got similar proportion to them. That was one of the things I liked about all the sixth edition releases: is that the high sculpts in general had they had a uniformity to them, but it wasn't too much. It wasn't the, the monopose uniformity. It was enough uniformity to give them a sense that they were a disciplined fighting force, but enough variety in the sculpts to give them a sense that they were different people, different individuals you know, um, with, you know, being distracted by things or looking at different things on the battlefield. It was very clever. It was the, that was the way it worked with the and Sea Guard models, with the Swordmasters of Poeth, with the White Lions, and eventually the Phoenix Guard when they got their metal, their redo redo metal for six. Mm. All
1: right, so what's the next unit? Shadow Warriors.
2: So they are They are a great unit. They are one of those ones that got a little bit more fleshing out as the books went on, as their culture sort of got developed. Because initially in 4th, they were really weird, janky models, and they were also kind of... It was a bit uncertain as to what their motives were or really what purpose they served in the army. Um, I guess they've always been sort of light skirmishing troops. But anyway, we've got Shadow Warriors, 15 points a model, Um, stat line, movement 5, weapon skill and ballistic skill 4, strength and toughness 3. Wounds 1, Initiative 5, Attacks 1, and Leadership 8. Oh, and I'm I
1: surprised it. by the Ballistic Skill. Say again? I'm a bit surprised by the Ballistic Skill of 4. I thought they were 5.
2: Yeah, I did too. The Shadow Walker has a Ballistic Skill of 5. So the thing that's disappointing about them is they're essentially no better at shooting things than an archer, um, but they do have the ability to skirmish and scout. So you can put them in all sorts of interesting and advantageous positions on the field before the game starts. You can use them for march blocking. You can use them just as a sort of hint of a threat to something. You can use them to clean up war machines. They're very, very useful. Now, 15 points is probably a little bit too much. Maybe 14 would be more respectable. Um, but you can have as many units of them as you want, and they can be in unit sizes of between 5 and 15. So interesting sort of blocks of them could be used. I find 6 is probably the sweet spot for dice rolling, um, and a shadow walker is probably an auto-include because of his additional ballistic skill.
0: And then we can use comp the models themselves Mm. All of them really good looking.
2: Apart from the 4th edition ones, which are weird.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah, But uh, if you go over the 6th edition ones, you go with, with the 8th edition plastic ones, yeah. that are currently still available. Yeah, those
2: are great models.
0: Of course. I will consider them and then, they're good models. Yeah. And they make excellent crew for Boltron. Yeah. <laughs>
2: As we've seen recently, somewhere. Yeah. Um, what was I going to say? Uh, yeah, the strange thing about the the first Shadow, War, Shadow Warrior models was that their quivers were in such a strange place. They were on their on their knee at the front. Um, <laughs> I've, I've, I'm a field archer, and I know how awkward a position that is for a quiver, uh, especially a unit that's supposed to be this dynamic, fast-moving, sort of agile unit. It's definitely not where you would have a quiver. <laughs> It was very strange. And they, had, they were drawing these really weird swords, and they were also capable of being armed with shields at the time as well, which has always just seemed very strange. But in 4th edition, there was also another unit, which is not mentioned in any of the other editions. It was this interesting sort of um, uh, a very flexible unit, essentially just elf warriors, and you could arm them almost exactly as you wanted to. They were very cheap, and they had all kinds of weapon upgrades. So you could give them two-hand weapons, or you could give them a sword and a shield, or or spears, or great swords, or great axes, or how... I think they could even be armed with flails. Um, they were really interesting, because I think they allowed you to sort of make whatever kind of unit you felt you wanted. So you could have a sort of really fighty two-hand weapons unit, or a strange sort of small unit of double-hand we- weapon-wielding uh, guys. And it was quite quite interesting. I'm mean, kind of It's a shame that you've lost that flexibility in the later edition. And I just sort of mentioned them because I thought they were interesting
0: they did make something similar although you can't equip them nearly as much <laughs> with them as much variety in the <clears throat> sorry in the ship company for uh, yes, the cigar the list. yeah that's the only thing that's yep. been remotely yep. close
2: yeah so yeah shadow warriors quite useful how would you use them chris
0: i'm not gonna say as a crew for ball throwers. i'm gonna say as either as like hunting stuff that are a bit outside of the line of the enemy, like war machines or mages, if you can find them.
2: Oh, yeah, they're good mage hunters. That's a good point.
0: That's pr- probably the most, because otherwise you want something that can easily flank charge, and they're better alternative than tossing a scouting skirmishing unit in, in the flank of a unit. Mm.
2: They got much better in later editions, I think, because they they always lack the flexibility that you thought they needed to be a bit more competitive in combat. And I think in 7th in and 8th, they finally got the ability to have, I think they had two attacks each, and then you could also arm them with an additional hand weapon if you wanted to, which is why the kit is designed that way. Um, and that always made them a bit more interesting competitive, I thought, because you could then really start to commit to yeah. combat and really start to tie up units, and they would be a genuine threat. I mean, really, they're just a road bump in the current form they are in 6th, if you want to use them that way.
0: Yeah, but they look good, so they which look is yeah. sometimes yeah. just good enough.
2: Yeah, well, if I mean as far as I'm concerned that's what playing an elf army is all about, really. Yes. Just looking good. <laughs> you don't need to actually be just the, look good.
0: And then we have the Tirono chariot for eighty-five points, <clears> one <throat> to two <throat> per special choice.
2: Mm. So you can take them in pairs, and they use it one only one special slot. Yeah, they are a chariot, um, but they are a chariot pulled by elven steeds, so they're a bit faster than most chariots.
0: And they don't suffer from stupidity like the dark elf chariot do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
2: They'll get their, their impact hits. They're a good supporting unit to put next to a unit of silver helms or something like that. I have an army build where I've got all my special choices taken up by chariots.
1: Um, which They can have bows as well, right?
2: They have bows. They come with them as quite useful. You can, and they can shoot in any direction, being on a chariot. Uh, there's no sort of restrictions about um, the 45-degree line of sight angle. So that's quite useful. You can use them to sort of pick, pick off units, maybe force a break test. Um, if they've already suffered a few other casualties from another one of your archery units. Um, but it's pretty situational, that. I find that probably they just should be used as as they're intended, as a sort of supporting attack unit for a charge. Yeah. But there's a better unit for that in the rare selection. So
0: Yeah. But if you want to, you can add horses for them, which is nice.
2: Yes, you can add an extra two horses, can't you? So that'll give them four horses, yeah. Yeah. give them some more survivability. That's an extra two attacks in combat. And as we all know... Horses are the ones that do the real killing in a high army. army.
0: Yeah. Tends to be that way.
2: Yeah, brutal. <laughs> they always roll better in every single game I've ever played. The silver helms charge in. They look great. Like I said, they look great, but they're not really great. Lovely silver helms, lovely sharp, pointy lances, but they almost always fail to hit. But then the, the uh, horses, pretty much to a horse, can take down anything. They're way more afraid of those horses.
0: Yeah, but if you do want to use them with two horses, please model them as such, because that would look really good.
2: Yes, yeah, yeah. It's quite involved to do that, but it's probably worth it in the end. Also, the other trick about yeah. that is also obviously that then increases the footprints of the unit, the base size, and it means that they're probably more likely to get More enemy combatants into contact with the chariot itself. That's always a problem with chariots because they've got such a big base size. If they get flanked, then there's a lot of hits coming their way. And if you essentially make them a square base, then they, no matter which angle they're at, they're always going to get five or so infantry hits at them. (laughs) So that's another thing to bear in mind.
1: Yeah, that's true.
0: (laughs) On to the rare choices then.
2: Some fun stuff in here um the first one phoenix guard who are the mysterious guardians of the chamber. the what is it called the chamber of fate or something what is it called i can't remember what it's called now essentially the place where the future of the high elf race is written on black stone they guard the shrine of asurian and the flame of asurian and protect it but they also have seen the fate and their own fate, so that's why they're sworn to be silent. Um, and that's why they cause fear. they cause fear, because we all know that it's the quiet, creepy guy in the corner that's the scariest.
0: Well, the quiet, creepy guy with the massive halberd.
2: Uh, yeah, true. The massive halberd, the white glowing eyes, the big cloak covered in flames. Yeah, pretty scary.
0: Yeah. But you got a weapon skill of five and a initiative of six, which is what sets these apart.
2: Yeah, high initiative. Also very high leadership. Uh, leadership so they're implacable. The weapon skill is very strong. The fear is really useful. Um, any undead player will know how to use these guys well. Um, you know, you can charge them to, to a low leadership unit. Just charge them at them. They might run away.
1: Uh, we haven't looked at other rare choices, but would any of you take these guys?
2: They're difficult to decide, aren't they? Uh, I really like them, just because they're little buff, but...
1: I feel like uh, when you can pick between these guys and the Swordmasters and the, yeah. the Axemen, it's a very tough choice.
2: I, I know people who really just, they, they have the models and they use them as Spearmen. <laughs> um, fill yeah. out the core choices. They don't use them as the intended Phoenix Guard. But they're probably not yeah. efficient enough points to, to combat effectiveness-wise, to be honest. The Halberd, yeah. an extra strength point. Against some units that's useful. It'll shave away an armor save.
0: It's also that they do com- directly compete with bolt throwers and eagles.
2: Yeah, that's the biggest issue. They compete with the two best rare
0: choices.
1: Yeah. All right, next the rare choice. Yep.
0: Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. um, and this one has as like the chariots, it has uh, the one to two per rare choice. Mm-hmm. So you can
2: take a brace if you want.
1: One of the best yeah. uh, war machines in the game, I would say.
2: Yeah, definitely. Oh, you heard it, you heard it here, folks.
1: If only could put runes on it.
2: the dwarf player, he just said it's the best war machine in the <laughs> game. <laughs>
0: Yeah, just love to give them runes so they get magic attacks as well then.
1: they've been so good.
2: I always thought they missed a the trick here with this one. Um, the Repeater boat thrower is such a great choice. It's so reliable of, in terms of a, a war machine. It has the two modes of fire, so the single bolt can penetrate ranks and does huge amounts of damage to uh, monsters and stuff. All the sort of more uh, spread fire, which just, just sort of covers the unit in... Pretty, still pretty powerful bolt, so it's good for armor piercing. It's not great for sort of super heavy armored units. But I always thought they missed a trick in terms of making giving giving the bolt throw some other options in terms of ways of firing. I would love the ability to upgrade it to have magical attacks, so it could easily be enchanted somehow by mages to provide some sort of magical attack. Yeah. Or I even used to think the idea of maybe giving it some sort of magic fire attack where it would be able to uh, have some sort of magical assistance when the bolt lands to sort of cause fire damage or something. I thought that would be easy enough to do. wouldn't require any additional models. And, you know, as long as the points cost was appropriate for each of those different abilities, yeah. it would be quite quite fun.
0: And just upgrading it to uh, fire attacks wouldn't really matter. No, it would be very
2: substantial. I mean, if you're playing wood elves, you'd take it. If you're playing undead, tomb kings, you'd take it. Um, yeah. The arcane one would be really useful against demons and, again, undead.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the elves have plenty of magical missiles they can use anyway. That's true. Yeah,
0: and they're a hundred points each, which isn't that uh, much. Depending what they can do, it might be too much depending on if you compare it to other bolt throwers in the game,
2: or if you compare it to how much they cost in fourth edition, which was fifty points each, and they still did the same
1: thing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but this is still four as well, really good.
2: Yeah, really good. Yeah, they'll they'll hit things and they'll do damage. Yep. Initial me. <laughs> <roll> really <pretty> badly.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and then we have the white lions, which are 13 points per model and an out one choice.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah, so
2: we talked about these a bit before. and they, they sort of oscillate between being a rare choice or a special choice if you take that lion guard honor on one of your heroes or princes. As a, as a special choice, they compete with the other special choices, as you said. Um, in the rare section, again, they compete with other great rare choices like the Great Eagle or the Bolt Thrower. So, unfortunately, they kind of get they get worked out of most armies, I find, unless you really love White Lions,
0: unless you really love great weapons with uh, a strength four base. Yeah.
1: yeah, that's
2: great. I, I used to love them because in fifth, they had these three different modes of attack, which made them completely OP. In in all honesty. Um, but in this edition, yeah, if, you, if you're going up against a tough, sort of monstrous infantry, it's usually quite a good way to use them. They can hack at them.
1: They they can also walk through woods, right? Yep, yep. That's great.
2: And special skill, which means they uh, ignore forests in terms of movement penalties. They've got the, lion yeah. cloak, which means they get an extra uh, plus two to their armor saves from missiles.
1: Do they have light armor or heavy armor base?
2: Just light armor, okay. so they're quite, quite um, crunchy.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah, I, that's the same with uh, Corsairs, given that they have the Cedar Gun slash Lion yeah. Cloak. The difference is that Corsairs are a core choice. Yeah,
1: yes. I mean, these guys compete the most with the uh, Sword Masters, right? and. and... I don't know. They kind of fill the same slot, and they're kind of good at different things. Mm.
2: Yeah, I think you're right. I think the sword masters are great against other infantry, and the white lions are best used against probably monstrous infantry. It's the only thing I can think of using them against, or or against a monster of some kind like a hydra or um, mm-hmm. something like that, maybe.
1: They're better. I guess they're better offensively since they will strike last. Yeah, mm-hmm. substitute rounds, and if they get charged. Uh,
2: they get charged. It's not so good.
1: It could be cool to use them as a smaller unit. You could walk around flank with through woods and stuff, but it seems mm-hmm. like a waste of a special choice to have like a 10 man unit. Yeah, you're know?
2: right. And definitely a rare choice.
1: Yeah. yeah.
0: And if you want to utilize them to all of their special abilities, you have to put the general inside the unit so they get stubborn. Yes. Yeah. And that definitely might be uh, a bit too much.
2: They're not that expensive, though. Really, 13 points yeah. compared to the Sword Masters, only an extra point. And you're getting extra yeah. point of strength. You're getting a little less armor, but you're getting the Woodsman skill. Um, yeah, I think it's a fair And
0: round you round can get, the two. You, and it's stand, the usual 50 points of banner and 25 points of magic item. If yeah. you can just.
1: I wouldn't it. put the
2: Lion Banner on a unit of White Lions. It's got to happen.
1: All right, and the last rare choice.
2: And best rare choice, the Great Eagle. The eagles are coming. Race of them for two points. They're 50 points each. Best value you can possibly get, which is exactly how much it costs to mount a hero on one as well. So there is a flying circus build that a friend of mine is experimenting with (laughs) where you have a mage and a hero on eagles and another hero on eagles. And then you just have four Great Eagles as your full rare choice. And then a bunch of silver helms as your cause. And you've got a flying
1: circus. (laughs) Bjorn, bring me the rune of Flaxon right now.
0: (laughs) But that's how you get the ring to Mordor without having to walk there.
1: So they got 40
2: mil bases, which means they have wounds three, um, which is great because that means they can really soak up some damage. They'll receive it pretty easily, but they do have toughness four, which is the highest toughness in the high Elf army. So that's got to be thankful for that, haven't you? Um, weapon skill five, so they're you know more skilled than the average archer or spearman in terms of weapon skill. And they've got two attacks each, which is probably just each of their claws or their claws and their beak or something. Um, yeah, they're, they're they're almost the only rare choice I go with these days. I love bolt throwers, but the great eagles are so much more flexible and useful in terms of how you use them. Mar- march blocking is their is their whole bag. They love it. Um, And flank charges, rear charges, supporting roles, if you want to use them to clog up a unit. They're great at taking out chariots. They're really good at that. Um, And other war machines, war machines as well.
1: Yeah, it really gives you the edge in the the movement game, and that is the game of Warhammer.
2: Yeah, six edition's all about that. So it'll give you the flexibility you need to put things where you want to put them and then support them with the eagles to make sure that your opponents are moving the way you want them to move, which is essential. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's it. So that's rare units. That's it. That's the final unit in the High Elf Six edition army book because we don't have any flying chariot boats and we don't have any phoenixes, although I'm pretty sure they were hero choices. Um, yeah,
1: that's it. Yeah. Right. I don't know if we should do the magic items. We've been going for we have been quite going
0: well, for a while I was just thinking we could do a quick overview of the... Special characters just for flavor and then.
2: Yeah, they're quite fun, aren't they? Let's not get too involved.
0: Yeah. <laughs> oh, we we'll start with Tyrion. Yep. He's a, what is it, like a short thing in uh, Game of Thrones, right?
3: Yeah,
0: that's it. That's, that's, <laughs> that's it, <fun>. right? <laughs> The Imp. Yeah, right. he's also the Defender of Alphon, the second one to hold that title.
2: Yep, he's inherited the title that Anarion started all those thousands of years ago, 4,500 years ago.
0: Yeah. He's quite a beast. He's a monster. Really. Yeah. yeah.
2: And he's, he's also-, also... It's his horse, Malandir, who has got a movement of 10, a weapon skill of 4. So this is just the horse, folks. <laughs> Strength 4, toughness 3, wounds 3, a horse, wounds 3. <laughs> Initiative 5, yeah, 2 attacks and leadership 7. So the horse could probably lead the army. <laughs> Because that's where it really gets silly.
0: Well, weapon skill of nine, ballistic skill of seven, strength four, toughness three, four wounds, initiative ten, four attacks, and a leadership of ten.
1: God damn! Initiative ten. Yep,
2: I think yeah. only greater demons get that usually.
0: Yep. Yeah. yeah. And he, and if you take Eterion, he just overrules the intrigue court rule. Yeah, he's always. He's also 585 points. Yeah.
1: Uh, But he's got some silly magic items as well.
2: Yeah, but yeah, Yeah. 35 points of that is the horse. And I'd take 35 points for a general for an army any day.
0: (laughs) (laughs) A general with a movement 10. Yeah,
1: brilliant. Uh, He's also a great model, one of the most striking models that I remember from. In in every
0: edition,
2: yeah. I quite like both versions of him.
0: Yeah, the sixth edition one is a bit more annoying because he comes on a larger base. Yeah, that's you true, know, just
2: of mine, so he's just on a regular cavalry base. I got rid of the elf on the bottom, the dead dark elf. Yeah. Um, I didn't want any any drukai on my on my bed.
0: <laughs> but it comes with a slew of uh, special rules. We're going to just mention one or two, I think. Yeah. Because I got the dragon armor of Enerion, which uh, gives him a 1 plus armor save and a 4 plus ward save. And with the exception of this improved save, the dragon armor of Anerion follows the normal rules for dragon armor on page 6 and 15. Immune to fire, basically. Uh, They could just have mentioned that he's immune to fire instead of... Yeah,
2: they could have just said that, couldn't they? Why do they have to point to the page? Anyway, that basically makes him as as tough to kill as any chaos lord, pretty much.
0: Yeah, Yeah. and uh, since he's cursed he also gets, as soon as Tyrion is reduced to one wound, he gets a two plus ward save for the rest of the battle, including after the heart. Because I he <laughs> have a heart of Avalon, which basically counts as if he dies, he re- returns to, to life with one wound. So this is after that. Yeah. So this replaces the four plus ward save. Uh, Note that if an attack will inflict multiple wounds, for example, a cannonball, then Tyrion will only get this special ward save if he has already been reduced to one wound before he is hit. So that's a bit of a caveat. So he has to basically have died once before yeah, so he can survive cannonballs to the face.
2: (laughs) That's incredible. So he's actually more powerful once he's dead, or been dead.
0: Yeah. And this is before we mentioned that his sword gives him plus three strength, so it's Strength yeah, seven
2: yeah. Sunfang. That's that incredible. sword. Yeah. also have a bound spell. Yeah, he can cast the Fury of Cain, which is. Oh, we didn't talk about any of the high elf spells, uh, but
1: we'll. Well, you say they're good.
0: <laughs> we, we can just mention them briefly when we talk about his brother. Okay,
2: yeah, we probably should. Yeah, that's the best way to do it. So we'll tell you about the Fury of Cain in a bit.
0: Welcome to the next character in the book, which is Ticklis, High Lore Master of the White Tower, a 630 points character
2: yeah that is quite the price tag but he is the most Mm -hmm. potent mage in the old warhammer world
0: yeah
1: he's the guy that taught the whole empire how to use magic
2: Yeah. yeah he has some interesting rules in six though um he has sort of two stat lines essentially i think this has probably been mentioned before but uh he has two different forms essentially a sort of fighting form and a magic casting form for all intents and purposes so he drinks a potion and the potion turns him into one of these two stat lines, essentially. So he's either got Saruwa as a stat line or Shadowa as a stat line. Hard to tell the difference when you say it. <laughs> uh, anyway, so the first one, this is his sort of mage stat line. Uh, movement five, weapon skill three, business skill three. So just like any other mage, not very good at fighting. Strength two, so actually worse than most mages. And this is because of the curse of Arion. He's got the sort of crippled nature.
1: It's because he okay. used all his energy in the threesome.
2: Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> uh toughness three wounds three initiative five attacks one leadership ten and then in his fighting form he has movement five weapon skill six ballistic skill four strength three his toughness is three so his strength has gone up as a result of taking the fighty potion uh his wounds stay the same wounds three initiative has gone up six attacks go up to three and then leadership stays at ten he automatically comes with the channel honor Mm-hmm. And he's got the Sword of Teclis, which is a sword that he forged himself um, in the Tower of Hoeth.
0: Yeah, should mention that the Sword of Teclis is uh, all hits from the Sword of Teclis, wound on a roll of two plus, and armor saves may not be taken.
1: Casual. Yeah.
3: yeah. Yeah,
2: (laughs) (laughs) Then the Moon Staff, which is his magic magic doodad, he gets an extra dice in the magic phase, including enemy magic phases, so that's for Dispels too. Um, At the start of his own magic phase, once per battle, he can draw on the full power of the staff. And when he does this, he gets D6 power dice, but it uses up the power of the staff. So he'll get loads of power dice, all of a sudden cast a whole slew of spells, probably cast a couple of weak ones to draw out the Dispels and then smack them with the one he really wanted to cast.
0: Yeah. And the, the, the two stat lines is also tied to he starts off as a level 4 wizard and as long as the last potion he drank was Charior. This will remain the case. However, while he's under the influence of Charior, he will count as only as a level 1 mm. wizard. So if he drinks the potion, he becomes a level 4 wizard again. So it depends on if he wants to beat something with his sword or cast a spell.
1: Yeah. Alright, I know that the, these two guys are like... The, what the re-
0: line does he start on? He starts start on the, the, the Sarawar one, the one with uh, level 4 wizard and okay. the mage one.
2: So yeah, he's basically only ever going to drink it to turn himself into combat yeah. guy.
0: It, it, it's you know, On the Potions of Inner Strength it says, at the start of the battle, Teclis will be under the effects of the Potion of Sorrow after the, uh, at any time he may choose to drink the other one that's
2: it i never i've never fielded him so i've never had cause to read up on these rules
1: but...
0: it's 630 yeah. points and you need to and you need the permission of your opponent
1: yes exactly
0: it's rare you have to
1: these two guys are usually the argument for why you can't have named characters yeah. in tournaments
2: i think you're right Niklas. <laughs> this is the reason that usually exists as a
0: rule yeah there's one more in the book, and that's Imric, the Dragon Prince of Calador. and it's the uh, near the dragon. And it's got the Starlands and the armor of Calador, and it's 675 points. Yeah. That's the last one in the book.
1: Dragon Dude. Yep. I think there's he's
2: nothing got the... particularly special about him, really, is there? He's not, he's just a.
0: He's a slightly better yeah. prince on dragon. Slightly better. I think that the, the whole. Calador... The, the only different main difference, really. Is uh, that you got the dragon kin rule which is no dragons will fight Imric. Mm. If they are in base with other models shall then they fight them instead. Otherwise they may do nothing. They may of course fight Minother you know, if he's still alive. So if you start in battle with a dark elf on a dragon, the dragon that dragon won't fight Imric. Yeah, yeah. That's nice. I think that's quite a cool rule. Yeah, it's uh, fluffy if nothing yeah. else. Yeah.
2: There are lots of other in characters as we could talk about, um, which were present in other editions yeah. and add a lot of interesting flavor, but they weren't really written up in some
0: somewhere, book. somewhere yeah. in White Wharf, somewhere in yeah. a, one of the compendiums. Of the... And the, then we got the War of the Beard ones, but the most general ones is Elarial the, the Ever Queen and her Handmaidens. And she's a good spellcasting character, and she gets the unit of special spear mm-hmm. slash oh. women. And the two versions of Eltharion. Yeah. And Corhill.
2: Corhill, and I don't think Cariadran was ever given rules in six, was he? No, no. I think there's a way you can make him essentially, for all intents and purposes, with a series of different magic items. Was there a...
1: ever any rules for Svinabar?
2: Nope. No, it's just a king. No, you could you could take Sea Lord Aeslin, um, uh, yeah. just assumed to be your leader in the sea in the sea patrol list from Storm of Chaos. Um, and he really just doesn't have any special abilities other than the ability to, an army wide ability to do the premature
0: bombardment. <laughs> yeah. Could also mention that uh, after the Dark Shadows campaign, the Hyles got access to a Lightning Claw, a set of Power Armor, yeah. and a Flamer.
2: Yeah. They did well in that campaign, so they got the, the best
0: yeah. items. They c- came second in that campaign, so that was why they got the best items. Mm. Because the Darkest that campaign and got worse items.
2: Shall we just quickly go through High Magic and then we can call it a day?
0: Yeah, that sounds like a good idea.
2: Because I don't think we can do this without mentioning it. So people will be up in arms. Yeah. So usual rules for generating a spell, you roll for it. But of course, with the Seer Honor, that is moot. You can choose what you want. And regardless of what you roll, your mages will always know the Drain Magic spell, which is the sort of zero result on the the chart. So you usually roll one to six to determine your spells for each mage, and then you count down. So Drain Magic is simple, sort of basically just shuts down the magic phase, um, depending on how many, what level you want to cast it at, either five plus, seven plus, or nine plus on a 2d6. It will give you different results. Um, uh, so I'll just I'll just read the description because it's probably easier. Uh, the spell will be cast mm-hmm. at three different levels. Choose before you attempt to cast a spell. The casting number varies accordingly. So level 1, 2, or 3. Level 1, 5 plus. Level 2, 7 plus. Level 3, 9 plus and then you discard certain dice rolls. You discard sixes, fives and sixes, and four fives and sixes. So whichever you choose, the spell may be cast on a single enemy wizard within 24 inches of the caster and may be cast into close combat. If successful, the victim's spells will be weaker. When the victim rolls to cast a spell, discard any rolls of six, five, or four, depending on the level of the spell that you cast successfully, before c- calculating the total caster cast of, of, of the spell. Note that as the dice are discarded, any irresistible force and some is fickle results are ignored. So essentially, it can really really mess up the opponent wizard's ability to cast his spells
1: yeah that sounds really good
2: and every mage knows it so quite useful to just shut down the enemy mage yeah yep relatively easy to cast not as easy as walk between worlds but that's got a different function and that's the next spell
0: as the mage intones this ancient incantation he begins to fade from view becoming as insubstantial as a ghost mm. This is on a four plus.
2: Do you think this is what happened to Belco Handris? He just cast this spell and then everyone thought he was dead, but he just couldn't uncast it. So he just became a ghost.
0: <laughs> Possibly. Or <laughs> he just uh, trapped in some kind of uh, time loop, mm-hmm. casting that spell fading a bit, casting that spell fading a bit and just returning to yeah, it's basically it's kind of a high-elf ground, ground
2: That's what happened. <laughs>
0: uh, this only affects the caster and only if he's on foot, the caster becomes ethereal. He can only be hit by magical weapons and can move through obstacles and through impassable or difficult terrain as it was open ground. The caster is affected by spells as normal and may cast spells himself and fight as normal last until the start of the caster's next magic phase. Is this wondered, useful?
2: Yeah, I always wondered what kind of use this has. I think it just really protects your mage from getting into combat, which can be a problem. Um, I can't think of any yeah. other use really, because if you want to maneuver him through difficult terrain, maybe that's useful to get him into moving, moving through, through a wall. Yeah, maybe.
1: That's the only thing I can
2: uh, think of. Yeah, I, I, I've never thought it being that useful. To be it's definitely not one i choose when I use the Seer Honor.
3: Nah.
1: No. All right, next one.
2: Next one's great. Love this one. <laughs> Curse of Arrow Attraction, uh, 6 plus to cast. The air around the victims shimmers with magical energy as it warps and twists. This may be cast on an enemy unit within 24 inches of the caster. Any missile far directed at the unit in the following shooting phase may re-roll any failed rolls to hit. The unit is targeted by a template or breath weapon and you may re-roll to hit any models which are partially covered. The curse has no effect on close combat. So this one's great, especially yeah. if you've got Those Illyrian reavers or those archers or the bolt throwers. Brilliant. Set this up. I once tried a build which was just built around this spell, and I had three... Level one mages, they all had Seer and they all had Curse of Arrow Traction selected as their first spell.
1: <laughs> I <laughs> bet people loved you.
2: It was a silly, no, it didn't work. Well, it was an awful build because it wasn't balanced. Um, the, um, and then everything else was archers and bolt throwers. Um, and of course, it's fine for the first two turns. And if you get first turn, it's great. Uh, but ultimately, there's no survivability to that build because once they get across to you, you're toast because everything's squishy as heck. <laughs> <laughs> But I thought it might be worth a go. I thought, well, let's. I'm always interested in trying completely extreme, optimized builds in one direction or another to see what works. It's a good way to test the system.
0: Yeah, the next one is is Fickle, and it's a remains in play and a seven plus the cost. And to normal folk, there is no effect. But to those with the witch side, it is obvious that the victim has been set upon by malign spirits made from the very stuff of magic itself. These creatures. Drag and pull at the unfortunate spellcaster, distracting and confusing his attempts to work magic. Mm. This one was mentioned in the Drain Magic uh, text. Mm -hmm. Uh, This may be cast on an enemy wizard within 24 inches of the caster and may be cast into close combat. Whenever the victim rolls any doubles, even a double six, to cast a spell, it is a miscast. In addition, any double roll by the opposing player, whilst attempting to dispel, will fail, even a double six. The spell lasts until it is dispelled, the mage chooses to end it, which you can do at any time, attempts to cast another spell or is slain.
2: So this is another way of really really janking up the enemy mage. Yeah. Yeah, it has its uses. uses. I'm not sure I would choose it though. I think the next three ones are definitely choices I would take over and above that
0: one. But if if you are sheeping on honors for this character you, if you get this on a, ro- on a roll it's good enough
2: it's, yeah it's not bad you can always choose walk between worlds but I wouldn't choose it over walk between worlds uh, <laughs> sorry I would actually because I don't think walk between yeah. worlds is that good anyway so, Unless you, yeah. Fury of Cain is the next one 8 plus my power so annoying Calling on the dread might of Cain, the mage launches a searing bolt of brilliant white energy at his enemies. The Fury of Cain is a magic missile with a range of 24 inches. It successfully casts it strikes, causing 2d6 strength 4 hits. So it's a pretty powerful magic missile, comparable to some of the sort of high-level ones in the rest of the laws, to be honest. Um, yeah, it's nice it's to have great. access to one if you're just running high magic.
0: Great, okay.
2: yeah. Not as good as the next one, though, Chris.
0: <laughs> Flames of the Phoenix 11+, plus, remains in play. Pure white flames emerge from the air itself and develop the target, Im- immolating the unworthy foe.
2: You're forgetting, I know you skipped a key word there, Chris. <laughs> they're scented flames, and I'm not sure why that's...
0: Oh, scented, <laughs> oh, how did I miss that one? <laughs> what, <laughs> what, what, what is the smell of these I oh, love
2: the idea that that's important somehow, you
3: know. They
2: start, <laughs> like, the enemies there stood there, and they're just going...
1: What's it's that, that vanilla? <laughs> it's vanilla,
3: <laughs> yeah.
2: Vanilla and um, passion fruit, I think. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's a lavender.
2: Hmm. Oh, I think I'm fine. Oh, what the hell?
0: This may be cast on an enemy unit within 24 inches. Uh, each model, including characters and unit champions, takes a strength three hit immediately. If the spell is still in play at the start of the caster's next magic phase, each model in the unit takes a strength four hit. <laughs> <coughs> oh, that's how, that's the smell. Just, yeah. The scent just lingering oh, yeah. in the throat. Uh, if still in play at the start of uh, the each... Still in play at the start of the causes It's follow magic phase. Each model takes a strength five hit, and so on, with the strength increasing by one each turn. It remains in play. The spell lasts until the spell the mage chooses to end it, and, or attempts to cast another spell or is slain.
2: Yeah, it's a good one. Those flames just keep getting yeah. painful, more and more
0: painful. Oh, it's like all of those flowers at Christmas <laughs> that just thinks up to everything.
2: Or like a Stilton that you're leaving to age becomes Lord of the fridge. <laughs>
0: They just forget in the back of the fridge, and you yeah. just realize I really need to clean the fridge.
2: Yeah, <laughs> that's the Flames of the Phoenix. Um, yeah, it's great, isn't it? Really useful one. This is the one that I find a lot of opponents are most afraid of, to be honest. They don't want this one to get off if they can avoid it, because it really yeah, starts away at their favorite unit that you've probably casted on.
0: Yeah, there are a few of these remains in place that are really nasty mm-hmm. if they get to build for a
1: couple of turns.
0: Yeah.
2: Right, the final one? The last one. This one's the one that is most kind of interesting in a way. I think I had a realization about this spell um, the other day, actually. I was thinking about it. I thought, well, this is really useful because essentially you can chew away at your opponent's points. You can start chewing their points away if you can get it off enough times. Um, so vols unmaking 12 plus so really hard to cast but um it's quite useful glowing swords grow dim and blood warm chalices cool as their magical energies are drained maybe cast on an enemy unit within 24 inches of the caster and may be cast into close combat if successfully cast the owner of the unit must reveal to the caster all the magic items in the unit so it's great because you can then draw out exactly what your opponent's trying to keep secret the caster then chooses one of them to be nullified for the rest of the battle spell itself does not remain in play but the effect last remainder of the battle falls on making can drain the magic from dwarf rune items Nicholas, <laughs> note that all the runes on an individual item will be drained by the spell not just one so all oh, would, wow. if the unit has no magic items and the spell has no effect
1: well that's great, great. great. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah you could draw out the the runes of a uh, stone throw as well for example
2: yeah yeah I never thought of that that's a good point
1: get rid of the, the reroll to hit and plus on strength in one go Very
2: Useful one.
3: Ooh.
1: that is Really if does you like. can uh, breach the dwarf magic defense.
2: <laughs> yeah, all those extra Dispel Dice they get.
1: <laughs> but yeah, that's, that's yeah. great. It's a great I
2: spell. It. I also love it because there's also a bound item that has it that the IELTS mm. can equip. Um, and there's also one that has the Fury of Cain spell as well. And those are quite fun things if you want to equip them to mages to give them essentially an extra spell that they can cast without using their power dice. Yep.
0: Yeah. Or if you have a commander somewhere. Yeah. Just need a bit of boost. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So Mage on an Eagle, perfect. Falls on making, draw line of sight, 24 inches to anybody you like, any unit you like, cast the spell. As long as you get it off, you then exactly know what that unit is harboring, what nasty surprises waiting there, and you can mitigate one of them.
1: Yeah, really good.
0: Yeah. Also, if you use the ring on a commander and he f- is in a unit that faces the enemy blob, or so to speak, that you know has a character in it, you can still cast it into that unit because you can cast yep. the spell into combat.
3: Yeah,
2: yeah. hmm
0: so you can boost yourself in a so, so in certain combats. Yeah. The, yeah. Would it give you an advantage? Probably not. <laughs> in general, I mean probably yeah, not.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course.
0: <laughs> there are better better rings you could use if you want really want to put a ring on a commander. <clears throat>
2: yeah, so that's it. That's um that's the high magic, which is probably the apotheosis of high elf craft, their ability to use high magic.
1: Yeah, good way to end the, the episode mm. to, to talk about what the elves are really about.
2: Yeah, magic is one of their key strengths. Sure. Um, I have run a non-magic army in the past where it's just heroes uh, kitted out to be tin cans. Um, and that's quite good too, but you do lack the ability to dispel your enemy's magic. So you have to bolster that with ward saves or... Uh, magic banners that give you Dispel Dice when they're specifically targeting units, that sort of thing. You always have to balance it out. And as we've said a few times, I think that's the way High Elves are used best. You have to use them in concert with each other. The units always support each other. You can't really send in sole units to do one job. So there's no real Death Star unit in a High Elf army. Some might seem like they are, but they won't perform in the same way as a Death Star will in any other unit or army list. Yeah. Strength in numbers and supporting each other. It's all very friendly. Yeah.
0: <laughs> That's why almost all of the six dead builds for Hails had some kind of MSU in them.
2: Yeah, yeah. That's a good way to run them. Doesn't look so cool. <laughs> don't have giant blocks of no. cool looking spearmen with lovely shield designs. and don't have the, the Massive blocks of uh, silver helms. Yeah, huge, giant lumbering blocks of silver helms <laughs> crashing into things like a wave of steel.
0: They look great in photos. They don't work on the table. No,
2: they don't. It's a shame, really. Yeah.
0: But uh, I should round this off and thank you for coming on and being even being knowledgeable and stuff. And well, oh yeah, it's been really no, fun. I, yeah, I'm. It's starting to get a bit warm in here, so that's why I'm starting to fade a bit. Yeah, I feel. I'm pretty much cooked. Yeah, yeah, but it's been fun, and it's always nice to have more than just the usual cast on to Mm. discuss what, because it's nice to get all that extra knowledge into the podcast. Mm.
1: Yeah, nice to have a chat. I've been uh, talking with you uh, on the, our Warbands campaign chat, when uh, you've been posting a lot of else there. So it's been great to have a chat about those.
2: mm. I'll get more of them done. That's the new goal. (laughs) Now that I've got a little bit more free time.
1: Then one day we'll have a great old battle
2: we will have uh, that out, All
1: Niklas. All the units you want. Just yeah. uh, fill them with all the magical items you yeah. can, can possibly yeah. imagine.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Who's the mean use that trialed forum version of the, the higher <laughs> fleet that has the... Uh, Swordmaster as a core unit.
2: Oh, interesting. Hmm.
0: It was from one of the forums back in the oh, day. Very fluffy.
2: It, I would have to disagree because they—they just—they're perfect as special choices.
0: They also had mounted swordmasters, oh, so I'm not that really sure cool. about that. <laughs> 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 of my
2: um, forum um, ideas I had when I was a member of HighOff.net. That, that place was was rife with all sorts of interesting ideas for how to improve the higher farming list. And it, it had yeah. so many ideas I wanted to explore and do. And part part that's part of the reason the Monolith project has, that I was working on started, because it's quite interesting and fun to try and it's run. It's so
0: good looking. You have to finish it. Yeah, I need
2: to finish it. It's good fun to try and run kind of like interesting, flavorful, fluff friendly, sort of new, unique unit. And I think that GW really missed a trick in terms of 8th edition and brought out some strange choices. I think they could have gone in other directions and they would have been much more interesting and fitted the feel of the army a bit better. Yeah. Anyway, we won't get that. I think that- maybe that's
0: a subject for another episode.
1: <laughs> Complaining about 8th edition. That's half of our episodes.
0: Can you, you just have like an episode about what could have been?
2: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll definitely do a War of the Beard one. I'd love to be involved in that. Yeah,
0: I reckon we we could have you back, given that our resident dwarf expert is, is still in this chat. So, <laughs> But uh, I'm going to round this off, and we probably will catch up later. By all means. So thank you all for listening. Thank you for coming on. Thank you, Nicholas, for just sitting there, <laughs> so to speak.
1: It's been my pleasure.
0: For, for just uh, putting up with all of the elf talk.
2: I think Nicholas had some really important questions he raised. (laughs) He's very good at
1: that. (laughs) Good at not knowing uh, things. uh, That's what I do. Yeah,
0: Yeah. but see you all in the next episode. And hope you enjoyed this one.
3: Stay hefty.